Bob's world in sports. Be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. All right? Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. Darling, Welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. This is a Otis Redding Sam Cook tribute podcast, I might say. College football I'm going to be talking about. Uh, some basketball I'm going to be talking about. Georgetown Hoyas I'm going to be talking about. James Harden I'm going to be talking about. There's going to be a, this is going to be a podcast where I'm going to be talking about sports, no doubt about it. But as I'm recording this on December 10th, in the year 2020, today marks the 57th and 53rd anniversary of the tragic ends 
to both Sam Cooke and Otis Redding, two guys who were not only going to be changing the ways of music, but also changing the ways of society. They were starting to do it. They were on the pathways to do it. They were on the avenues to go ahead and do that, but their lives were cut tragically short. So two of my greatest heroes, shall we say historical heroes, shall we say, I've always said that, you know what, when I finally go to heaven, whenever that's going to be, and I get reunited with my dad and reunited with my mom and go see my family members who are already up in heaven and get introduced for the first time to my grandparents. And I want to go ahead and say, man, I want to hear Martin Luther King and I want to hear Malcolm X speak. I want to see the 844th rematch between Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali. I want to see Jack Johnson fight Rocky Marciano. I want to go ahead in the HBA that the Heavenly Basketball Association. I want to see Kobe Bryant and Wilt Chamberlain's team and Len Bias's team and Hank Gather's team. I want to see what they're doing up there. I want to see what team John Thompson is going to be coaching and Red Arrowback is going to be coaching. I want to go ahead and go see the uh, football games between Johnny Unitas's team and Y.A. Tittle's team and and uh, Ernie Davis's team. I want to do all that type of stuff, man. I want to go ahead and I want to hear a concert by Prince and Michael Jackson and Donnie Hathaway and Curtis Mayfield. Go ahead and see if, uh, I want to see if Tupac is, uh, up there or down there. Also want to go see a Biggie concert. Want to go see Gangstar, the Guru again. So when I get to heaven, there's going to be a lot of things on my agenda. And since I'll have all eternity, I'm not going to be in any kind of rush. But two of the things, as I mentioned before, that I, want to go and I just want to have the opportunity is man can someone please introduce me to Otis Redding and Sam Cooke so I can bow down because those guys have uh you know their 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 ways their dedication their commitment to their craft and everything that they did in the time period that they did it has uh really inspired me from that that level there have been two people who have really uh, inspired me to go ahead and do some things. So I'm definitely at the end of the podcast going to go ahead and talk about that. So all of my music today is going to be Sam Cooke and Otis Redding. And it's all going to be live in terms of, you know, I'm not getting anything as far as the recordings of the music are concerned. Nothing off the albums in terms of studio version. Everything is going to be live. Got some stuff from Monterey with Otis. I got some stuff from Whiskey A Go-Go with Otis. I got something off of the um, time when Sam Cooke did his show live at the Harlem Club down in uh, Florida. So those are the type of things that I'm going to be doing today, man. I'm giddy. I'm pumped. I'm ready. I'm rip-roaring, ready to go. mentioned before, man, there's certain dates I want to do my podcast in terms of doing the dates, introduce you to some things that have really touched me. Lem Bias. I always do a June 19th or June 21st first um, podcast because my childhood hero, Glenn Bias, passing at that time. And I always want to give my special dedication to that. I'm talking about when Malcolm X was assassinated and some of the great things what he did. I want to go ahead and give my special dedication on a podcast to that. So there's certain dates where I'm just going to say, hey man, this podcast, yeah, I'm going to be talking about sports because that's what I do. That's what I love to do. That's my therapy, especially in these times of uh, the pandemic and some of the things that uh, we're not able to do uh, because of the pandemic. So, you know, sitting in the house all day, not being able to see my mom, not being able to see my uh, beautiful, wonderful, fantastic, magnificent uh, godchild, Sidney Davis, can't go back east to, you know, visit my brother, Mikel Davis, or again, go see my mom. So, you know, these are the type of therapeutic things that I like to do. And uh, today has just been kind of uh, a day where it's been something of reflection, putting this together and uh, playing a lot of music by Otis and Sam 
thinking and uh, watching a lot of watching a lot of YouTube clips. But it uh, fills my heart with uh, joy, a little bit of sadness when you know. Once again, looking at the looking at the uh, articles about their passing, watching some. Uh, I mean, there's a wonderful uh, documentary about Sam Cooke on Netflix that I watched. There's a, a BBC uh, show about Otis Redding that I watched. So. Today has been a it's been a good day. It's been a solid day. It's been a learning day. You know, with uh, you know the mind, the heart, it's all been touched in uh, different ways. And this is just the icing on the cake to go ahead and take my thoughts and to take my feelings and my opinions about two of the greatest people who uh, really touched me and influenced me outside of, of course, my family and my immediate family and friends, and talk about uh, what uh, two musicians from the 1960s meant to me and how I'm using them to uh, try to better myself and how just by their music. I mean, they weren't politicians. They weren't kings. They weren't uh, monarchs. They weren't anything like that. They were two musicians, one from Macon, Georgia, the other one born in Clarksdale, Mississippi and moved up to Chicago, Illinois. What they did in terms of moving this society ever so briefly in the right direction uh, was magnificent, was extraordinary, especially in the time period which they had to do it. And it's, uh, their, their, their presence and their, uh, impact is still being, still being felt today. So those are the things that I'm going to talk about near the end of my podcast, at the end of my podcast, because as we know before, this is a sports podcast called Wendell's World of Sports with your host, yours truly, Wendell Wallace. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. Que pasa, mi amigos, mi amo, a Wendell Wallace. Wendell World in Sports. Niao, namaste, Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Wassalamu alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with, with us. Shalom, konnichiwa. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Love, peace, happiness, unity, understanding, education, intelligence. Let's see what we can do moving forward in that direction. All right, so oh, let me get ahead and start with this. College football here in the racist, ignorant, selfish states of America, a.k.a. United States of America. One of the four most talented teams in college football might not be able to play in the college football playoffs because of a technicality. Right, sure, uh-huh, wink, wink, wink. Tuesday, Michigan announced the annual rivalry between the Buckeyes and the Michigan Wolverines. Ohio State Buckeyes and the Michigan Wolverines have been canceled. There was an increase of COVID-19 cases over the past week within the uh, Michigan football program. The decision was made after conversations with medical experts, health department officials, and the university administration. So uh, Michigan's chief medical officer, some guy named Daryl Conway on Tuesday, wouldn't specify how many players have tested positive or how many players were in contract uh, contact tracing, but he said that the Wolverines did not fall in the red, red threshold that would require the Big Ten to pause activities for the program. The, <laughs> the Michigan is down to 45 players from their 110-man roster, or they're down 45 players from their 110-man roster. So what, we're looking at 75 players? You guys can't go ahead and play Ohio State with 75 players? I mean, y'all was going to get your asses kicked anyway. Y'all could have played with 110, 220, 330, 550. It wouldn't matter. Y'all ain't going to beat the Ohio State Buckeyes the way they're playing. 
in the way you're playing, but I understand. I understand if you're Michigan, especially if you're a player from Michigan and all the turmoil swirling around and we don't know what's going to be going on with Jim Harbaugh and the disappointing season and the realization if you're a player. And look, when you're 18 to 22 year old, two year old and football has been your life for your existence. And that's probably one of the most, if not the most important thing that you're doing in your life so far. And everybody has dreams and goals of aspirations of going to the NFL that, you know what, any time I can get on the field and play football, I'm young, I'm strong, I'm invincible. I can go ahead, COVID, it. Hey, you know what? I've read the 99% survive and all this kind of nonsense. I'm willing to take that chance. So if you're 18 to 22 year old and you're a player, hey man, I can understand the fact that, you know what? I ain't backing down. I mean, there was just all the speculation that the, uh, Wolverines were, uh, you know, were, were trying for an escape. They were scurred to play Ohio State. And I don't believe that for a second. I don't believe Jim Harbaugh runs away from anything. I think if King Kong was in the ring fighting and he was in the ring, he'd go out there swinging. Um, I don't think any of the Michigan players were backing down from an opportunity to go ahead and play their biggest game of the year, their biggest opponent of the year. And again, if you have the mindset of trying to uh, be an NFL player, what better way to show some tape? What better way to impress scouts to play well against one of the best teams in the country? So every, all of that swirling around, I don't think that as far from a football standpoint, players and coaches, that they were the ones who had a say in whether we play or not. or They didn't have the deciding uh, say in whether Michigan was going to play Ohio State this Saturday. This was an administrative decision and. There's no fans in the stands and very few stands and the fans in the stands. So the financial impact that it would have would be minimal because of uh, everything that's going down. So there's no game this coming Saturday, 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time between Ohio State and Michigan. What does the cancellation then mean to Ohio State at the time that Michigan said no go with this? Because Ohio State had played only five games total this season. And under the threshold put forth, now remember now, under the threshold, under the rules, laws, and regulations put forth by the Big Ten Conference, it says to compete in the conference championship game that there would have to be a minimum of six games that you would have to play to qualify for the championship game. Now, Northwestern was like, cool, we got our six plus, we're ready to go in. Ohio State had five. So it was like, well, then shouldn't it be Indiana? Because if Ohio State can't get a game by December 19th or December, yeah, December 19th, which is in two weeks, which is only two uh, weekends from now, they're ineligible to play in the conference championship game, right? I mean, you guys said it right here. I mean, you guys put it pen to paper. I mean, it's, it, it, it's there for everybody to see, right? The rule states that you must play six games to qualify for the championship game under the unless the average numbers of game played throughout the conference fall below six. So this was a situation where the Big Ten didn't want a team like Maryland or Rutgers or Michigan State to go three and zero. Ohio State loses a game; they play all their games and go eight and uh, go seven and one. But then they were like, well, you know, because Maryland, Rutgers, and Michigan State are one of those lesser tier schools, only play three games, and because of COVID and everything else, that they decided to. Uh, Ended at three, they should be in the championship game because a team that has gone undefeated is better than a team that has one loss, even if that team only played three games compared to a team that played eight games. So that was a measure put in by the athletic directors 
on the Big Ten Conference to make sure something like that didn't happen. But when, what they weren't counting on, and during the pandemic where everybody said, who knew anything about this pandemic, they said that during the season, during the fall season, that the numbers were going to go up because of the weather change and everything like that. Why the Big Ten would go ahead and put in something like this is beyond me. But then again, we're speaking about the, the uh, Big Ten. But then again, we're speaking about Ohio State. And when you have that situation, you knew that once it came down, that Michigan canceled its game against Ohio State and Ohio State wasn't going to have a another opponent to play. You knew that the Big Ten were going to rectify that situation. So, you know, the, the fix was in in terms of uh, what day was that? It was a couple of days ago, a situation where the Big Ten officially changed its policy that teams must play six games to be eligible for the conference championship game, which means on December 19th, six days before Christmas in Indianapolis, the number four Ohio State Buckeyes will face Northwestern. So the conference made the announcement Wednesday afternoon after his administrative council said so all the athletic directors and senior women administrators voted to eliminate the minimum gate requirement in collaboration with the Big Ten Council of Presidents and Chancellors. <laughs> yeah, surprise, surprise. The number four Buckeyes again will take on Northwestern December 19th by default. Um, Indiana, who was ranked number 12, they would have been the Big Ten. 10 East representative in the championship game, even though Indiana lost to Ohio State on November 21st, 42-35. Terrible look for the Big Ten. Again, how much more can we say to this when we're speaking about the conference games, when we're speaking about the conferences itself, especially when we're speaking about the Power Five conferences, all about money, nothing new, nothing surprising, nothing awe-inspiring, nothing Columbus discovered America type-ish. This is all about money. Putting the big, putting up Ohio State in the championship game, it wasn't even necessary for Ohio State to do. If anything, what the commission should have done was save their skin, save their dignity, save their character, at least try to carry on with the facade, with the farce that you really do give a damn a little bit about your quote unquote student athletes. And you should have said like, look, this is the rule. This is what happened. I'm sorry. Indiana is going to be playing against Northwestern. And it really doesn't make a difference because guess what? I bet you Ohio State still at 5-0 and would have been eligible to be in the college football playoffs. Or they still would have been the number four team after everything is all said and done. And it really didn't matter if Ohio State wins this game or not. Because, A, if Florida in the SEC championship game beats Alabama, then the four teams that are going to be in, regardless of what happened in the ACC championship game between Clemson and Notre Dame, the four teams then, if Florida beats Alabama in the championship game, conference championship game, the four teams is going to be Notre Dame, Clemson, Florida, and Alabama. So really, it's almost out of Ohio State's hands whether they win or lose. Now, if they lose in the championship game against Northwestern, then they're really screwed. And then let's take a look at all of the uh, animus and all of the negativity and all of the what the hell you were doing that was that's going to be coming the Big Ten's way in the Big Ten conference communities if that happens. Because it should have been, damn, y'all should have just let bygones be bygones, save face, save your dignity, have Indiana play Northwestern. Northwestern in Indiana, the winner of that game, that wasn't going to be going to the college football playoff. They weren't going to jump Ohio State, even with Ohio State being 
uh, playing only five games. Indiana already lost to Ohio State. So whether they won the conference championship or not, that didn't make any difference. They weren't going to sneak in. And I know for the you know, representatives, the, the council, the chancellors and the administrators and the athletic directors of the Big Ten, I mean, this is just something where they figured, look, Northwestern doesn't have a chance against Ohio State. We put Ohio State in. They beat them pretty soundly, pretty convincingly, pretty handily. Shows that we're one of the best teams in college football, which we all agree, right? We all agree here that Ohio State is the fourth best team at at worst in the country, right? So this is just something to cement that fact for the college football committee, college football playoff committee. So we'll go ahead and do that. Which means for me, as much as I love Ohio State, Man, I would love to see Northwestern beat Ohio State. <laughs> I just would love to do it. So, it, again, it doesn't make any difference. The top 10 teams in the college football playoffs, the rankings that come out every Tuesday, wasn't different a couple of days ago. Alabama was still number one. Notre Dame was still number two. Clemson was still number three. Ohio State was still number four. What the hell? College football playoffs uh, so, uh, selection committee chair, Greg Barna, guess what? He serves as, Ohio, as Iowa's athletic director. It is mandated that five of the 13 members of the committee of the college football playoff committee are acting ADs at the Power Five conference school. So guess what? The playoff chairman is a guy, is a member of the Big Ten Conference. You really think at 5-0 and that they were going to screw Ohio State out? If everything is copacetic in terms of, regardless of what happens with the ACC championship game between Clemson and Notre Dame. And if Florida beats, or excuse me, if Alabama beats Florida, what do you really think? What's going to happen next? What do you think the selection committee, because because uh, Ohio State played five games, what do you think all of a sudden now they're going to replace them with Cincinnati, Iowa State, Oklahoma, Coastal Carolina, Texas A&M? No, of course not. Of course not. Before uh, Ohio State, the selection committee wants in. So, again, why the Big Ten would go ahead and do these shenanigans in terms of eliminating something, a rule that they put in, is beyond me, when clearly it's a no-win situation. If Ohio State wins, good. If not like, I mean, if they go and play, if they move up, maybe it's a situation where if Clemson blows out Notre Dame or... Vice versa, Notre Dame blows out Clemson and Ohio State whoops up on Northwestern. I mean, maybe then there's a situation where Ohio State could move to number three and avoid playing Alabama until the championship game. But I don't know if I'm if I'm any one of those teams, one of the Blue Bloods or the recent college football elites, speaking of Ohio State, Clemson, and Alabama in terms of the four teams that's in the playoff right now, you would think normally within the last, I don't know, six, seven years that you would want to play Notre Dame in the college football playoffs. But the way Notre Dame is playing, this ain't your this ain't your middle school brother's Notre Dame football team. I mean, this ain't Wake Up the Irish. I mean, this ain't uh, Nuke Rockney. This ain't Era Parsegian. This ain't Joe Thiesman, Thiesman type of teams at, Ohio, at uh, uh, Notre Dame. But damn, they're good. And they're more than capable. I don't know if anybody really is. Well, every, anybody's capable in terms of the teams that I just mentioned to beat Alabama. But even if you think that Notre Dame is the fourth best team 
out of those four schools that I just mentioned, those four football programs that I just mentioned, those four football teams as of today, which I just mentioned, if Notre Dame, you feel, is fourth behind Clemson, Ohio State, and Alabama, the gap between the third best team of those foursome and the fourth best team is not that significant. In terms of Alabama shouldn't be dancing in the street like Martha and the Vandellas. They shouldn't be dancing on the ceiling like Lionel Richie if Clemson beats Notre Dame and Notre Dame falls to number four. And Alabama does what they need to do. And then that semifinal matchup is between the number one ranked Alabama Crimson Tide and the number four ranked uh, uh, Notre Dame Fighting Irish. Alabama fans, I'm telling y'all right now in Montgomery, I'm telling y'all right now in Birmingham, I'm telling y'all right now in Tuscaloosa, hey man, don't be up there dancing the gig because that's that um, that uh, Notre Dame team, that ain't no joke. They ain't no joke. So regardless, it's going to be an interesting playoff game. It's going to be an interesting playoff series. The committee members know that. The television execs know that. ESPN knows that. So, of course, you want the four most recognizable teams there. Clemson, elite. Alabama, we know about their, their, um, their, their, their presence in states in the, in the Southeastern uh, Conference uh, uh, area, in the communities. And we know how huge Notre Dame is. So, it's like those three, you, you know they want those three. So, number four, of course, you're going to want to have the team that's most significant in the uh, upper north uh, uh, part of the uh, racist states of America, the selfish states of America, the ignorant states of America. Of course you want to have Ohio State in there. What, you think they're going to be trying to find some way to put in Texas A&M? You're going to try to find some way to put in, again, if Alabama beats Florida, or you, you, you think the committee is up there trying to find ways to see what they can do as far as Iowa State if they win the Big 12 championship? No, I mean, once Oklahoma lost their two games at the beginning of the season, I mean, they were done for the most part unless complete chaos happened, and it didn't. But the Blue Bloods always get in there. The Blue Bloods always have the preferential treatment. So that's the reason. Ohio State, again, I don't understand why the Big Ten will go ahead and you know, make that decision, but case sarah sarah. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. This is the second conference speaking about the Big Ten to manipulate the rules for the betterment of their best teams to make the playoffs. If you remember, last week, the ACC canceled Clemson and Notre Dame's final regular season games to ensure the ACC championship game would have two of the top four or five teams in the country or two of the top four teams in the country, ensuring that not just one, but two teams would get into the college football playoffs because remember it's all about the money 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 the playoff pays each power conference 66 million per year plus an additional six million if the team if the league gets a member school into the 14 field so yeah man it's all about money it's all about the situation again i think it's sort of a risk for ohio state to be have a, given a waiver, given a pass, get out a jail-free card for them to play in the Big Ten Championship. When you have the chairman of the college football, maybe they're doing it just to save face. Maybe just as a way for this ridiculous co- selection committee, who, by the way, can you think of another team sport in the world? I don't care where in the world you're talking about. I don't care if it's in Vancouver. I don't care if it's in Toronto. I don't care if it's in Cape Town, South Africa. I don't care if it's in Bangladesh. I don't care if it's in Kung 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 Kung
anywhere in Japan, Hong Kong, I don't care where it is. Have you ever heard of a team sport where the playoffs are decided by a selection committee? Could you imagine the NFL doing that? Let's just take the best four teams and we'll have a bunch of ex-football coaches decide who the top four teams are. Could you imagine that in the NBA if they decided who the top five or eight or 12 teams are for each conference? Could you imagine that in the CFL? Could you imagine that in the NHL? Could you imagine that anywhere? Could you imagine that in the bank, uh, in, in, the, in the football leagues all across the uh, European countries where they would have a selection committee? Go ahead and make your choice. Go ahead and make the selection. Go ahead and decide who the top four teams are and regardless mainly of your record and how you did. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. But that's that's college football. So here we are. Ohio State, Northwestern, 5-0 and versus Northwestern. Rules have been changed. Let's see if, uh, <laughs> let's see if it works. I want you to listen to this song right here for me. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Oh, man, what could have been? What could have been for our society? What could have been for the music industry? What could have been for certain neighborhoods? What could have been for certain communities? What could have been? What could have been? What could have been? been? The story of Sam Cooke, the story of Otis Redding, 53 years ago, 57 years ago, today, December 10th, their passing. If you really want to be technical about it, Sam, Sam Cooke was shot and killed the morning of December 11th. But, you know, December 10th, December 11th. I'm recording this on the 10th. It'll be published later on tonight. You'll be hearing it on the 11th. Same thing. Say doggone thing. But as I mentioned before, it's going to be getting into uh, their stories and uh, special dedication podcast for those guys, for those legends, for those. Hall of Famers, Otis Redding, Sam Cooke. Be talking about them, as I mentioned before, a little bit later on on the podcast. Man, I am pumped for this podcast. I got my next 48 hours. I got my first 48 hours on A&E. See that the um, Los Angeles Rams are whooping up on the um, New England Patriots. Cam Newton has been replaced by Jared Stidham. 
drank my green juice today, had a pretty good meal, had a pretty good day, stayed indoors, really didn't do anything. So, uh, yeah, man, I'm ripped, roaring, pumped, and ready to go. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. So, we were speaking about the college football playoffs. We were speaking about Ohio State and Big Ten. Their gamble, I guess, to save face, to uh, go ahead and to uh, kind of solidify Ohio State getting that number four spot, number that number three spot in the college football playoffs, despite the fact that they weren't eligible to play in the Big Ten championship because they only played five games. The Big Ten committee members and whoever else decided, yeah, you know what? Screw it. I know we said six was a minimum. That's okay to play in the Big Ten championship game. We'll uh, we'll let Ohio State in. The second best team is Indiana. Ohio State beat them earlier this year. So, you know, case sarah, sarah. It really wasn't their fault. I mean, Ohio State, uh, Illinois, they canceled on them. Maryland canceled on them. Michigan canceled on them because of COVID-related issues. So, it wasn't a situation where Ohio State was manipulating the system for them for for them to get the easy route. So we'll just we'll just go ahead and do that, and we'll throw that shit up against the wall and see if it stinks. I made the point with all the manipulation that's going on, starting off with the ACC. I, I just don't understand why the SEC doesn't say, you know what, uh, uh, the SEC championship game is canceled. Alabama, you're just going to be named the conference champs and go on in. Now, I guess the reason why they don't do that is because best case scenario, really the best case scenario for the SEC is to have Alabama lose in the championship game to Florida. That way you could get two schools from the SEC into the college football championship. So you would have two schools from the SEC and two schools from the ACC. So I can understand why the SEC is not going to go ahead and cancel that championship game. I, I don't. I just don't understand why the Big Ten will go ahead and make this rule change when even at five and zero, oh, I would suggest or I would guess that Ohio State would be in the college football playoff. But I talked about that in the first segment, so if you want to go ahead and, and listen to that again, be my guest. But I want to talk about the nonsense, the fraud that college football has become year after year after year when dealing with these college football playoffs. The biggest nonsense that we get from those in charge about why college football is the best sport on the planet. We always get the same bullshit. We always get the same nonsense. Nonsense. Hey, this is the best regular season in all sports. Every regular season game has a meaning and it's meaningful and this, that, and the other. And, you know, in the NBA, they play all these games that are meaningless. And, you know, you get 16 teams from the, uh, you get 16 teams in the playoffs. And in football, you get X amount of teams and, uh, the NHL and everything else, the Buddhist League and everything else, you get all these teams in the playoffs and college football is the only sport where you have a minuscule amount of teams in the playoffs, so which means it puts more emphasis on the college football regular season, which is fucking nonsense. Because guess what? The college football playoffs is an exclusive club, which only a few members are eligible or actually get in there. Of the 24 playoff spots during this season, during, you know, coming into this season, 17 of those spots for the college football playoffs, the four uh, spots, 17 of those have been filled by just four schools. Four. When you're speaking about Ohio State, Clemson, Alabama, and Oklahoma. So the 24 playoff spots, 17 of them have been uh, filled by Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, and Oklahoma throughout the years. 
So at the start of the four-team playoff system in 2014, Alabama has made it five of the uh, five times, five of the six playoffs. They missed the last season for the first time. Clemson has made the playoffs the last five seasons. Ohio State has made it three times. Oklahoma has made it four times. So wh- where is this inclusion? Where is this the regular season is so important and everybody has a chance? Where's that? Where's that nonsense? Where's that? Where where's the fruition? Where's the evidence of that? If you take a look at the other seven schools who have been in the playoffs, you take a look. There was Oregon, Michigan State, Florida State, the James Winston Winston years, uh, Washington, Georgia made it twice, and LSU who won the whole thing last year. Other than that, welcome to the Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, Oklahoma uh, Invitational. If the current rankings hold for this season, there'll be no first-time playoff entrants this season. And the group will have claimed 20 of the 28 all-time spots. Again, when you're speaking about Clemson, Oklahoma, Ohio State, and Alabama. It's, I mean, and and let's, let's be real here. Let's be real here. Teams like Cincinnati, teams like BYU, teams like Coastal Carolina, they're never getting in. If you're a school outside the Power 5 Conference, you have no chance. None. Zero. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many losses the other schools have in the Power 5 Conferences. It doesn't matter. Cincinnati was never getting into the playoffs. Never. Never. BYU, even though they lost to uh, Coastal Carolina, giving them their first loss of the season, they, it doesn't matter. They were never getting into the playoffs. Coastal Carolina, wonderful story. He picked to finish last. No one believed in us, and now we're undefeated. Oh, good. Who gives a fuck? It don't matter. What does it mean? It doesn't mean anything. What, you get the opportunity to play in a New Year's Six Bowl? Big fucking deal. And uh, look, a, a successful football program, college football program, I, I, I understand the impact. of a, If you have a really successful uh, athletic department head, headed by its basketball or football department, especially football, we understand that, you know what, this season for Cincinnati, it's going to help overall the university. Enrollment is going is going to go up. It gets the name, the University of Cincinnati, out there. When you play on television and you have that 30-second to minute info commercial or that, you know, promo commercial where you can go ahead and you can show your campus and you can go ahead and give that plug, I understand how important it is. And even if people are talking about how Cincinnati is getting screwed and this is no good and this is terrible and what we're going to do, hey, at least, at least Cincinnati is being brought up in the conversation where most people are tuning into the program to listen and talk about and hear about uh, the Blue Bloods, hear about the Alabamas and the Ohio States and the Clemsons and the Notre Dames and the Texas A&Ms and the Floridas of the world. So within that half an hour, an hour on a, on a program, you know, Cincinnati gets mentioned, that's free, that's free advertising, that's free publicity. So yes, in one sense, I get it. Financially, it's great. It's been shown when you have a strong football program, when you have a strong basketball program, depending upon what region of the country that you're in. I mean, I'm quite sure Iowa gets a lot of uh, juice, gets a lot of uh, extra income in terms of people who are interested in the university and enrollments and everything. I'm quite sure that the wrestling program that they have there plays a big role. The same thing with the wrestling program at Oklahoma State. Same thing with the lacrosse team over at Syracuse. Same thing with the college, uh, with the, uh, the softball program over at UCLA and, and, uh, who else is good now? Oklahoma in those, in those schools. 
depending upon, again, what region that you're in. So, yeah, I can, on, on one regard, hey, you know what? There is some advantages for Cincinnati being undefeated. But, I mean, the other part of it is just the hypocrisy of these college football folks to sit there and talk about how wonderful and how glorious and how fantastic that the regular season is, and then you have no shot whatsoever no matter what you do. Cincinnati could have beaten every team that they played 200 to nothing, and it wouldn't have made a difference. They weren't going to get past Alabama. They weren't going to get past Ohio State. I don't care if Ohio State would have played two games this year. Cincinnati was never going to leapfrog them and become uh, that team. That was, that was really serious. That was going to be a serious contender for the selection committee to put in the top four. They were never going to be ahead of Clemson. They were never going to be ahead of North Carolina. They were never going to be ahead if they did what they should have done. They, Cincinnati was never going to be ahead of Georgia. They were never going to be ahead of Florida. They were never going to be ahead of Texas A&M. If LSU had some type of semblance of a team that won the national championship, they were never going to be uh, put ahead of them in terms of uh, playoff seedings. It's never never going to happen. A mid-major school, a school for the non-Power 5 conferences are never going to get in. And these clowns can sit up here until they're blue in the face and talk about that's not true, that's not true, that's not true. The evidence shows that it's true. There's never been a situation. The last team that from the non-Power 5 conference that won a championship was BYU back in 1984. How long ago was that? Lots. So how in the world can you sit there with a straight face and talk about how wonderful this system is when you know that 80% of the schools right off the bat, the regular season in terms of trying to get themselves into a position to win a national championship is meaningless. Great game the other day between BYU and Coastal Carolina. Fantastic, wonderful, great, awesome. I didn't watch it. You know why I didn't watch it? Because I knew the game was nothing more than an exhibition. It meant nothing. Coastal Carolina wins. They become undefeated. Big fucking deal. Just like with Central Florida a couple of years ago with Scott Frost before he took his talents, coaching talents to Nebraska. Where they were talking about, oh yeah, I mean, we're the real national champions. We'll play Alabama. Ha ha ha. We're undefeated. It don't mean shit. Big term in terms of playoffs and championships. Real championships. So... For me, when people talk about, you know, half the schools, Maryland could have gone undefeated. They ain't getting in. Rutgers could have gone undefeated. They ain't getting in. Washington State could have gone undefeated. They ain't getting in. I'm talking about in normal years. In normal years. Now, it's a little different because schools in the Pac-12 started differently and played a certain amount of games and the Big Ten teams are playing a certain amount of games. But in a normal season, in a normal regular season, you really think Mississippi State has a chance to get into the NCAA playoffs? Do you think they really have a chance uh, to make the top four for real? I doubt it. I highly doubt it. Mississippi State, Mississippi, Georgia Tech. They're not getting in. Maryland, Oregon State, they're not getting in. So it's a real exclusive club. And these guys, for the most part, they want to see Oklahoma, they want to see Texas. They want to see Notre Dame. They want to see Clemson. They want to see Ohio State. They want to see Michigan. They want to see Florida. They want to see Florida State. They want to see USC. They want to see Oregon. They want to see those type of schools get in. And they'll do 
mostly everything possible. Because when they do these selection committees, do you, do you know what the process is in terms of trying to figure out how they come up with the top four teams in the country? I have no fucking idea. Are we talking about just based on talent? Are we just talking about the schedule? Are we talking about um, the, the ranking? Are we talking about individual talents? Are we talking about past success in the playoffs are we what are we talking about here what are the parameters now the committee will sit there and say well we take all of those things in consideration yeah but which one is more important than the other which one weighs heavily more than the other one i mean are we speaking about because you, you can't sit there and say well you know we have, take a look and we take a look at the games and we take a look at who's playing well and who's doing this that, and the other if you're doing that how can you judge how good ohio state is based on only five fucking games when they played really one halfway decent opponent how can you compare how good ohio state is compared to say for instance an iowa state who's played i don't know what 9 10 11 games or a uh, texas a&m or a uh, florida well you know um texas a&m they're they're out of the question because they lost to alabama and they lost to them decisively okay but haven't they gotten better throughout the year and how do you know if they're better than Ohio State the way Ohio State is playing now? Because they haven't played in a while. So we don't know. So how much of the rust factor goes on here? And how much, if they did play, if Ohio State looks sloppy because they haven't played in a while. Start off slow and everything like that. And they just get by Northwestern. But say, for instance, Florida takes Alabama to double overtime before losing. I mean, how do you make that... How do you go ahead and say, well, obviously then Ohio State deserved to be, deserves to be uh, the number 14? Based on what? Based on what? Well, Florida would have lost twice. Yeah, but it seems to me, by taking a look at those two teams, you could honestly make the point that during that week, that Florida was the better football team, even though they lost to the best football team in the country. I mean, if Notre Dame goes ahead and puts on another classic against Clemson, and wins, and Alabama struggles against Florida. I mean, is it just a foregone conclusion that Notre Dame is still going to be number two and, and uh, Alabama is still going to be number one? What's the selection committee? What does this break down to? What are we talking about? Are you guys watching film? Are you guys breaking down film? I mean, do you guys have coaches or consultants or somebody in there who can take a look at these positions, who can take a look at these schemes, who can take a look at all of this stuff and say, based on what I'm seeing here, based on what I'm seeing there, based on what I'm seeing from special teams, based on what I'm seeing from the defense, based on what I'm seeing in head-to-head -head matchups, based on everything that comes down, this is a situation where I think this team is better than that team, that team is better than these teams, those teams are better than them, than them teams. Can we... Go ahead and make that assertion based on what? Based on what? Before I used to have, you know, these old ex-coaches who would come in here and somehow that would make us feel better because, I mean, no one would know better who the best teams in football are. And if you're speaking about, you know, guys like Tom Osborne, who's a Hall of Famer and won a boatload of game, and Barry Alvarez, who had been coaching football for four or five decades, and Tyrone Willingham, and all these type of guys who were coaches, and they coached at these high-profile programs, and they led their team to these bowls and those bowls and these high rankings, and all of this minutia and all of this blabber and palaver and all of this nonsense. But I always used to say, how closely if we're speaking about guys like tom osborne as tom osborne wasn't he as, wasn't he a, a, a politician i mean didn't he have a, a main job that he can do when was the last time tom osborne coached the team 
There's a lot of times where, guess what? These old coaches who did all of their work and did their great work in the 80s, how do they know what's going on in terms of what's happening in college football, the trends and everything that's happening in the year 2013, 2014, 2015, 2016? I mean, hell, back in the day when Todd Mosborn was doing the thing, he was running the fucking wishbone. And now we're going to sit here and we're going to ask him to see, you know, with these spread offenses and all of these new ways of playing football and everything, how much has he been connected with college football so he can go ahead and make an accurate assessment? And that's just okay with you guys? That's good enough for me? I don't know who's making these calls. I don't know what the criteria is. I just don't. And you don't. And no one else does, except for those people in the room. I tell you, I would have more faith in terms of trying to figure out who the four best teams in college football are. I would rather have uh, folks in Vegas. I would rather have the sports book directors in Vegas tell us who the four best teams in college football are more than the four guys, more than the guys that are sitting in this committee discussing who the, discussing who the four um, best teams are in college football. I bet you the Sharks in Vegas, I bet you they know much, much more about this than those clowns sitting in the um, sitting in the uh, committee meetings doing this type of stuff. So it's just absolutely ridiculous. Wendell's World in Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Again, the most ridiculous way of having a playoff. I just, and I mentioned it in the first segment, name, name me a sport anywhere. College, semi-pro, pro, anywhere. Name me a team sport where the playoffs are decided by committee members who don't give us an outline of how they come up with the four teams. Well, the four best teams are uh, Notre Dame, Clemson, Alabama, and Ohio State. Yeah, no shit, Sherlock. I can fucking figure that out. <laughs> I mean, we don't need to, you guys need to have committee meetings and all of this stuff for hours upon hours. What do you guys need to talk about? What changed so differently from this week, from, from last week to this week? Let me see here. Um, let me see. Um, Clemson won, Notre Dame won, Alabama won, and Ohio State, they beat Michigan State. Okay, so what are we going to talk about here? Oh, I know, we got to put in, you know, who's the... Who are the number six to number 10 teams? And who's the number 11, 15 and number uh, 20 teams and all of this nonsense? Who comes in at number 24? And that, that huge debate that we've got to have between which team, where should we put Coastal Carolina? And let's see, let's match them up against Iowa State or let's talk about them concerning, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, another team out there, or USC or some nonsense like that. I mean, it's very, very important that we spend 45 minutes deciding exactly where does USC fall as far as the rankings are concerned. Well, should we put them number 19 or maybe should we put them at number 23? Woo! That's really going to uh, say a lot. Especially in a year like this where you have bowl games dropping left and right, canceling left and right because of uh, the pandemic. Who gives a flying fuck about teams basically 10 to 25? Who cares? Who cares? You think Cincinnati gives a fuck? You think Cincinnati really cares? Do you think Texas A&M really cares? They don't. What does it mean if Cincinnati finishes number 7 or number 11? It still, it don't mean nothing. They still ain't going to be playing for the championship. They're not making the big four. They're not going to be in the uh, uh, college football playoffs. 
what, they get to go to the Sugar Bowl, or they get to go to the Orange Bowl, or they get to go to the Cotton Bowl. I mean, great and wonderful. But for those players, for those student athletes, it means jack shit. It means nothing. So it's, it's I don't know. It's, again, it's, it's an absolute joke. For me, for me, if I was running the college football playoff system, or if I was running college athletics, if I was running college football, again, I would have, and I've been telling this, I've been saying this for over, I don't know, I've been saying this for about eight or nine years, man. If I was running the college football playoffs, I would have an 18 playoff where each champion from the Power Five Conference would automatically be eligible to get in, and then we would have three wild cards. And those wild cards would be based off a of BCS system. You know, you put in the rankings and you put in the, well, you know, you, you take a look at the different polling or whatever like that. That That's the best way to do it. That doesn't take it out completely in terms of the, the nonsensical way of how a playoff should be determined. No, because you're still going to have three teams based on, you know, who, you know, based on numbers and all of this kind of stuff. But it's very easy. Schools from the Big Ten, Pac-12, SEC, ACC, and Big Ten, Big 12, whatever I said, whoever wins that conference championship, they're automatically eligible for the playoffs. I don't give a damn if the Pac-12 sucks. I don't give a damn if the Big Ten is down. I I don't care. I don't care if the SEC has four great teams that deserve to be in there. I don't care. That's the way it works. No ambiguity, no questions, none of that nonsense. Because again, I don't know how these guys come up with the four or five best teams in the country. This way, pretty clear. And, the, and, and those are the rules. That's the way it goes down. As much as it's bogus, as much as it's nonsensical, as much as it's humorous, as much as it's head-scratching, as much as it's eye-rolling and head-shaking, how bad the NFC least is, guess what? It's a conference. So whoever wins that conference, whether they finish 16-0 or 5-11, it doesn't matter. Because of the rules stating that A, a champion from this conference goes into the playoffs, there is no like, oh, I can't believe this. This is bullshit. This is wrong. This is outrageous. I mean, we can laugh. We can shake our head. But we're never going to say, oh, this should be a situation where, I mean, I've heard some people talk about, you know, if a conference champion doesn't finish 8-8, eight and eight, or doesn't finish at least 500 that they shouldn't be eligible for the playoffs. That's that's bullshit. I will say this. I think if a conference champion finishes below 500 that they shouldn't have a first a uh, a home field uh for the first round that is the wild card from for instance the AFC South is had the better record from uh than the AFC uh Western Conference champion that those two those two teams can still meet but they'll be meeting on the home field of the wild card team because the wild card team even though they didn't win the division has a better record than the team that won the conference division i know i'll go for that but i'll never go for a situation where you know like for instance this season when the nfc east was at its lowest that you know there's some way somehow that we should not have any of those teams go for the uh be qualified for the playoffs that's nonsense but that's that's the way it goes and that's a much better system. I think everybody would agree. Wouldn't you agree? Wouldn't you agree? Wouldn't you agree? Wouldn't you agree? That having that system is much better than, say, for instance, that we're going to have a selection committee 
for the <laughs> for the AFC and for the NFC, and we're just going to go ahead and we're just going to pick the top four teams. So, for instance, we're going to go ahead and we're going to pick from the AFC. The selection committee got together and they broke down the X's and O's and they, you know, watched the uh, replays from 15 different angles. And we saw this game 15 different times from 15 different angles. And we used our vast background and experience of being ex-football coaches and working with the NFL and and in some type of coaching capacity. And we're going to go ahead and based on our Thoughts and our feelings and our discussions, hours upon hours and weeks after weeks of trying to discuss who are the four best teams in the AFC. We're going to come up with the Pittsburgh Steelers. We're going to come up with the Kansas City Defending Champions. We're going to come up with the Cleveland Browns. And we're going to come up with the, oh, oh, I don't know, who else is out there? And we're going to come up with the Indianapolis Colts. Let's just throw a team out there. So those are going to be our top four. Now, if Pittsburgh goes ahead and loses next week to drop them to 11-2, and two, then all of a sudden Pittsburgh then might drop out of the top four uh, teams. And if Kansas City blows out, that blows out their team that they're playing, that's just going to be able to solidify them as the number one ranked team. But hold on for a second. You never know because just right outside the Tennessee Titans who were eliminated from the top four teams in the AFC because they lost to the Cleveland Browns and lost to them in horrible fashion. So if they were ranked number three or number four in the pro football playoff committee's top four teams to make the playoffs, and they went ahead and lost at home to the Cleveland Browns. Well, then they fall completely from number three all the way down to maybe number seven or eight. I mean, how, how ridiculous, how idiotic, how nonsensical would, would that be if the NFL ran their playoff system like college football? How stupid would that be? And how many times would we able? To, how many times would we not be able to see a team, for instance, like then the Oakland Raiders, who were a wild card team, move all the way up and win a Super Bowl, or a Cinderella team, or something like that? How would that happen? Same thing in the NFC. In the NFC, they'd be talking about, oh, let me see, based on here, let me see, the Rams, they beat the New England Patriots uh, pretty convincingly tonight. So that means we're going to gonna hold on. They might even move up from number four to number three, depending upon what the, um, depending upon what the New Orleans Saints do. Now, if the Green Bay Packers lose, or if the Green Bay Packers don't look good, the way that the... Los Angeles Rams play tonight. They might move from the number three spot in our NFL-NFC playoff ranking. They might move ahead of the Green Bay Packers, which means that, you know what, if Green Bay has a couple of more bad games, they might fall out of the playoffs because of our selection committee where they break down the tape, I think, or where they discuss who's the best team, I think, or where they discuss which team had the most talent, I think, whether they discuss, whatever they discuss, I mean, they're going to be in charge in terms of which team are going to be in the playoffs, so we've got the Saints, we got the Packers. Oh, we what about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers? Are they still in this? If they go ahead and they beat who they play this week, they beat the Minnesota Vikings, so no big deal. But I mean, look, this this is a type of bullshit. We don't have to worry about the nonsense in the NFL. We don't have to worry about a selection committee. You know why? Because they play that shit on the field, and that's how they determine who the playoff teams are. Not in college football. And understood, there's a lot more teams in college football than there are in the NFL. Gotcha, understood. But still, let's have some, let's have a system where everybody understands the rules. Or have a better system. 
in terms of let's make it more to where it's like what you do on the field will determine how good you know winning your conference and the other we know the rules we know the criteria that way also guess what I bet you if that was the case I bet you you would see more of these top tier teams during the preseason of these uh, college football season. they would be scheduling more top 10 teams or they would be scheduling you would have better games in September in terms of top ranked teams playing each other because it wouldn't destroy their season for instance if just throwing out two names out here. If Oklahoma played Ohio State and Ohio State beat them, then guess what? Oklahoma wouldn't be sitting up there thinking it's a death. It's almost like a death sentence because if we lose one more game, our season is kaput. Who knows? We don't know. Oklahoma's playing some really good football. How do we know that Oklahoma isn't better than Ohio State? How do we know that Oklahoma isn't better than Notre Dame, well, I mean, come on, Notre Dame, they beat Clemson, and they did this, and they did that. Yeah, they beat Clemson how many weeks ago? I mean, how do we know this? Well, Ohio State, they've got they've got Justin Fields, and they beat up on Michigan State, and blah, blah, blah. How do we know this? How are you sure? Well, because of the talent, because of this. How do we know if you're not going to play each other? Oklahoma is one of the hottest teams in college football. So just because they lost two games in September, that automatically disqualified them from competing for a championship? How do you know they're not the best team right now? It doesn't make sense. So let's just throw that analogy back to the NFL. I mean, how bad were the, I, mean, I guess, how many teams have we seen in the NFL where they started off slowly? Well, they haven't been very good the first two or three or four games. But yet by the end of the season, because of momentum, because of other things, they're one of the best teams in the league, or they're playing the best football in the NFL. I mean, how many, if we were using the bullshit, idiotic, nonsensical, out-of-date, archaic way that college football determines its playoff contenders, how many years of the Bill Belichick, Tom Brady dynasty would the Patriots not have been able to qualify for the playoffs because coming out of September, they were 2-2, two and two, or they were struggling. But they had new players, they had new schemes, they had new systems, they had to get it all together. So, yeah, in September, the Patriots weren't that good. But by December, they were one of the best teams in the NFL. But only in college football will you have what happened to you the first two or three games of the season penalize you moving forward. And, you know, they talk about the bullshit. Well, you know, that's what makes the regular season so great in college football. And that's what makes it so wonderful and every game counts and everything like that. That's bullshit, man. So what are we doing here? Are we going to try to find out who the best team is or what? Because the way the system is now, it ain't. I would like to see you. There's no guarantees. In football, there's, football, there's no guarantee. Even in college football, as dominant as Alabama looks, as dominant as Notre Dame looks, as dominant as Clemson looks, as great as Ohio State looks, there is no guarantee that they would beat Cincinnati, that they would beat Florida, uh, Florida, that they would beat Georgia, that they would beat uh, Texas A&M. Now, are the chances really good that they are, that they would? Yeah. But guess what? In the championship game of years and years ago, it was pretty well a foregone conclusion that Nebraska was going to blow out Miami with Mike Rozier and 
and uh, and uh, Tom, who was the quarterback for uh, uh, Turner Gill and those guys. It was a pretty good foregone conclusion that Nebraska going down to the Orange Bowl was going to beat Miami and win the national championship. How'd that work out? Oops. 2003, I think it was. It was a pretty foregone conclusion that Miami of Florida was going to go ahead and beat Ohio State or Maurice Claret. How did that work out? Oops. That's what makes sports sports. It was pretty much a foregone conclusion that USC was going to solidify their spot as one of the great dynasties with Matt Leinart and Reggie Bush and Lindell White and Pete Carroll and those guys by beating Texas in the, in the Rose Bowl. How did that work out? Oops. Before those games, everybody was talking about how great those teams were. How they were just, you know, this was just a foregone conclusion that they were going to cement their status as one of the best teams in college football history. What happened? Oh, I forgot. They played the fucking game. And I'm quite sure that if the 2003 Ohio State Buckeyes would have played Miami of a, um, Miami that year, nine times out of ten, they probably would have lost. The Bernie Kozar-led Miami team that played Nebraska nine times out of ten, they probably would have lost. But guess what? The one time they won. Let's just see what happens with giving more inclusion to some of these teams who are playing well. Iowa State is playing great. But because they're not the sexy college football program, because they're not one of the Blue Bloods, I mean, it's just like... they. The committee throws them a bone. Oh, here we go. We'll put you at seven. Yay. Good little program. Good little program. How do we know that Iowa State isn't better than Notre Dame? How do we know that Iowa State isn't better than Ohio State? Oh, you know, take a look at all those number one draft picks. You got Justin Fields, who's you know one of the contenders for the Heisman Trophy, and look what they did to Michigan State, and blah, 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 and blue, blue, blue. And I don't... Uh, let them play the game. Let them play the game. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So that's college football for you, man. That's college football. No other sport in this world has a playoff system like college football. It's pathetic. It's ridiculous. And most importantly, even though it won't, even though it won't, not as long as I'm living, I'm guessing, even though it needs to change, one thing about college football one thing it hardly ever does for the betterment is change. Oh, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Thank you, Mr. Redding. God bless you, Mr. Redding. Rest in peace, Mr. Redding. Thank you very much. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, 
Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us speaking about what's going down today in the world of sports as I pay special dedication to the greatness of Sam Cooke and Otis Redding, the 57th and 53rd year anniversary of their passing of their untimely deaths. I'll be talking about them near the end, last segment of the podcast, but there's still some things that I want to talk about pertaining to what's going on right now, right here, currently present in the world of sports. You know, I read uh, one thing that was pretty interesting. It was with an excellent article written by Ivan Mazel, who I guess for the time being still works at ESPN. He was uh, laid off, but he wrote something very interesting on ESPN.com. He was speaking about the uh, black coaches or the lack of black coaches being um, uh, in college football. We talk about all the time the lack of minorities and black head coaches in the NFL. And Blue Moon, we do sometimes somewhat talk about the inequities of black coaches and they're not given the opportunities to become coaches, especially when we're speaking about those in the Power Five conferences. Vanderbilt, the only reason why, first I came across the article, read it, got me very interested in talking about it, giving my thoughts and opinions about it, the excellent uh, piece written by Maisel. But also, it kind of came to me the other day because it was a situation at Vanderbilt where they fired uh, Derek Mason last week, black head coach for the Commodores. He was 8-0 in the seventh, seventh season, and Vanderbilt has just one win in the in SEC play the last two seasons. So he finished... Mason finished with a record of 27 and 55. And, and look, I'm not sitting here and say, you know, this un, it's unjust and it's racist and it's horrible and it's just this, that, and the other for Vanderbilt to fire Derek Mason. They gave him seven years. He was 27 and 55. I know it's Vanderbilt, but even at Vanderbilt, he has some pretty ugly losses throughout his tenure, especially in the last couple of years. So, I mean, that firing was justifiable. Now, will Derek Mason, if he wants to, become a head coach again? Will he get that opportunity? If he wants to be a college football coach, will he get that opportunity? He seems young enough to where if he can get a coordinator's job and work and put his nose to the grindstone and shows that he deserved another chance, then that should be the situation. But when you're black and you're dealing with becoming a coach, a head coach in college football, especially if we're speaking about trying to become a coach in one of the Power Five conferences, it's extremely difficult, very difficult if you're black, if you weren't successful, regardless of the situation, the first time that you were a head coach to get an opportunity the second time. There have been plenty of white coaches who have gotten second or third chances uh, to fail uh, as head coaches. That's not the opportunity. That's not the situation for black head coaches. So that really got me to thinking because I, man, I don't know what the situation with Lovey Smith is at Illinois, I know Mel Tucker at Michigan State, he just got hired. So even in a situation like this, after one year, they're not going to fire him. I think about Cardarell, Carl Durrell, who's the head coach at Colorado. He's done a good job. Thinking about a couple of others, Mike Loxley in Maryland. I think Maryland, the University of Maryland, that, that uh, program in that community, too progressive for... Maryland to go ahead and do something ridiculous like fire Loxley uh, after after one season or two season at Maryland. You can take a look at some a couple of other coaches. As for now, they seem they seem rather safe. But when you take a look as of this recording, 
And you see that there's only 13 black head coaches among the 130 FBS program. That's a problem. That's a problem. That's a problem. That's a real problem. And according to the NCAA Race and Gender Demographics Database, 10% of the programs have black head coaches in a sport in which nearly half of the players are black. In fact, in the SEC, 61% of the players are black. And now two of the fire now now the SEC is two of five uh, two of the Power Five conferences, the SEC and the Big Twelve, that do not have a black head coach. In fact, the Big Twelve conference they haven't employed a black head coach since Texas fired Charlie Strong justifiably in 2016. In fact, none of the conference uh, conferences ten athletic directors has even hired a black head coach at any school that they've been to. So we're speaking. Texas and Texas A&M and Texas Tech and, and Oklahoma and all these other places. I mean, their ADs haven't hired any black head coaches during their tenure as athletic directors. I don't know which ones as far as their years at that position are concerned, but damn, zero from all of them? Survey conducted by the NCAA in 2019, the 65 Power 5 schools employed 10 black athletic directors Two black presidents. We always talk about, you know, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Well, I mean, when you only have a situation where you only have 10 black athletic directors and you're also speaking about where are those black athletic directors, where are they located in terms of, are they even in a community? Are they even in a part of the region of the country where hiring a black coach wouldn't raise too many ears, wouldn't raise too many eyebrows, would be suitable, acceptable for the big t- uh, big donors who contribute financially to those schools. Two black presidents, we don't know what type of hoops and what type of things they have to go through. Because if you take a look at the geographics, and we spoke before about, you know, now that the SEC has fired Derek Mason, and you're speaking about Nashville, Tennessee, which is somewhat progressive, as you're speaking about a city within the state of Tennessee, the same state of Tennessee that, uh, no, South Carolina reelected Lindsey Graham. So I apologize to Tennessee, but, uh, you know, they're not a bastion outside of Knoxville and outside of Nashville and probably outside of Memphis, shall we say. I wouldn't call them uh, too progressive. But if you take a look at schools in the SEC, the ACC, the Big 12, really not in progressive enough communities to even hire a minority head coach. If you take a look at Alabama, Louisiana, Oklahoma, Kansas, Mississippi, Tennessee, South Carolina, Kentucky, Southern Virginia, Northern and Central Florida, Texas, not the most, shall we say, diverse, which you're speaking about some of the areas, some of the communities where of those where those schools are located. Don't think there's gonna to be too many folks out there in Oxford, Mississippi, Jacksonville, Mississippi. Uh, Starksville, Mississippi, Stillwater, Oklahoma, Norman, Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Lawrence, Kansas, uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, maybe Knoxville, I don't know, but still, not not too many places where you would expect a a coach or an athletic director to make a a hire of a man who's uh, of color 
who might be uh, not looked upon very well in terms of the entire community is concerned, in terms of running their football program. Now, if you're talking about their basketball program, no problem. Alabama has hired Anthony Grant. Louisiana has hired Johnny Jones. Oklahoma had Kevin, Kelvin Sampson. Um, Tennessee. Did Tennessee ever have a blackhead coach? I don't think so. But, you know, South Carolina hired Frank Martin, who's of Cuban descent. Uh, Texas, Shaka Smart. So for, for basketball purposes, the SEC, the Big 12, oh yeah, they're pretty good about hiring black coaches for basketball. And maybe that's their excuse to hide their privilege or I wouldn't, I don't, jeez, man. I mean, it's, there's just too many layers. There's just too many other things going on. And that, I, I've always said, it's a serious charge to call someone a racist. I mean, you would have to be pretty, you would have to have some pretty substantial evidence if you were going to call somebody a racist. Now, I'm very comfortable and I'm very confident in calling someone in terms of their white privilege. I mean, white privilege is alive and well and basking and glowing and growing and is strong because most white folks don't even realize their white privilege because they're white and because of that, it's been their birthright that they've had privilege, especially in this country where white folks are the majority. And if you're speaking of regions in Alabama, Louisiana, Kansas, Missouri, Oklahoma, South Carolina, parts of Tennessee, yeah, that's basically all they've known is being around people who look like them and have the same privilege that they do because of the color of their skin. So it's almost so ingrained. As I mentioned before, I've always said, for us, for bringing true unity and harmony and equal opportunity for everybody, it can't be my generation. I mean, we're speaking about folks in my generation who's been living 40, 50 years of white privilege. You can't expect them to all of a sudden turn around and start accepting some of their flaws, accepting some of the, um, what's the word I'm looking here? Accepting some of their... um, fallacies in terms of their white privilege and everything. That's not going to happen. We have to kind of like ingrain that within the younger folks to let them know that even though you are born with privilege in this country, just based on the color of your skin, you shouldn't take so much advantage of it to where it's to the detriment of those who are just as qualified for you to do anything, whether it's work at a position that you might be able to work in or live in a community where you might be able to work or live in, go to a school where that person of color might be just as qualified for them to go to that school as you do. You can't use your white privilege card all the time to get what you want. And right now in this country, in the selfish states of America, in the ignorant states of America, in the blinded states of America, in the ununified states of America, this country that we live in called America, oh, the white card, the white privilege card is being played over and over and over again. So that's a big difference to me between being racist and being having that white privilege. To me, being racist is, you know, you're up there calling me nigger, you're up there lynching me, you're up there denying me my civil rights, you're up there abusing me. I mean, that's, that's, oh, that's, that's, that's a lot different. I mean, a racist is someone who will admit that they're a racist. It doesn't matter. I don't like you because of the color of your skin, period. I don't like you because of the religion. I don't like you because of something else. I mean, a racist will sit up there and be like, yeah, white nationalism, white power, all that, that kind of stuff. 
a racist means that white people are superior than black people just based on the color of their skin, in my definition. White privilege is, hey, look, man, I know it's wrong for me to call you a nigger. I understand that, you know, black people shouldn't be lynched. Yeah, I know it's wrong for black people to be judged just based on the color of their skin. And that's the reason why or that for someone to get a job just based on the color of their skin and nothing else. I understand that's wrong, but they don't see it in terms of, yeah, but see, it's happening right now. And just because you think it's wrong and just because you know that it's wrong, that doesn't mean it's not happening, and that doesn't mean unconsciously you take advantage of the system that's in place to where white privilege, white privilege exists. And that's the same thing with going on in college football right now. That white folks who are in position, especially when you're talking about these schools who don't have any black head coaches, I'm quite sure that they will always sit back and be like, no, I don't think it's that big of a deal. What are you talking about? All right, yeah, there might not be any black head coaches right now, but you know, take a look at our take a look at our athletic department. Take a look at all the black people that we employ. Take a look at our football staff, and we and you see that we have black people as coordinators and helping out and getting paychecks uh, from this university to be running backs coach or quality control people or anything like that. I don't know what you're talking about. Just because we don't have a black head coach, just because we never had a black head coach, we don't we don't hire people based off the color of their skin. It just so happens that every job, every time there was an opening for a head coaching position that this university for a head football coach. And depending upon what school we're talking about here, this is a situation where what every five, every seven, every 10, if we're speaking about something like in Alabama, it doesn't happen very much. If you're speaking about one of the top tier schools with, with a strong football program, Ryan Day ain't going anywhere soon. Urban Meyer can have all the jobs that he can want to because of his success. If, if you're speaking about, you know, those type of schools, those jobs don't come open very often. So, they can take a look, the ADs, the white ADs, the white head coaches. They can take a look and say, what are we talking about? I don't, I don't understand it. You take a look at our basketball program. You take a look, we, our, our basketball coach is black. What are you talking about? Well, we're so racist and we're so just against black people. Why do I have four or five coaches of color on my coaching staff? The AD can take a look. And, if I'm so racist, why the hell did I hire a black head coach to, to coach our basketball team? If that if that's what makes me so goddamn racist, why am I letting all these black kids play basketball? Why am I, you know, allowing these kids to come on campus and give them free rides and let them be student athletes and give them access to our facilities and the, and the training tables and the weight rooms and everything and all the advantages that come with being a student athlete? If I'm so racist, why am I giving all of these opportunities to these black kids from these predominantly black communities? Why am I giving them a chance to get an education? Why am I giving them, them a chance to fulfill their dreams of playing in the NFL? If I'm so racist, why I don't I don't understand where you're coming from. I, I don't get that. And in some degree, that's true. In some degree, that's true. That's not racism. That's white privilege. But see, with your white privilege, you don't understand. Yeah, you're bringing these guys onto campus from these lower tier social economic failed communities of color, but what are you doing to put them in position to where, they're, where, where they will succeed? Yeah, you might have coaches on your coaching staff, but what are you doing to help them help themselves learn their crafts and give them opportunities for upward mobility so they can become, you know, op so they can have opportunities to become head coaches? Yeah, that's great that, you know, you're hiring this bl black basketball coach to coach the 
college basketball team that you're the AD at, but what are you doing in terms of giving him the resources and the funds and everything that he needs to compete? How much attention are you giving to the football program with the white coach compared to the basketball team with the black coach? You see, those are the things that we're, we're, that we're talking about here. You know, so, so those are the type of deals. And again, if you're, if you're speaking about a state like Alabama, who voted for the fucking asshole that we have currently in the White House for another 40-something days, that you're speaking about states like Louisiana, Oklahoma, Kansas, Mississippi, Tennessee, South Carolina. Those are all states that voted for a guy who, I'll say it right now, he is a fucking racist. He is a fucking misogynist. He is an incompetent, arrogant, asshole antichrist. Those are the states that voted for this guy. Those are the community that voted for this guy. So those were communities that said, yeah, we don't mind racism. Yeah, we don't mind sexism. Yeah, we don't mind uh, him uh, taking babies away and separating children and putting them in cages and breaking up families. Yeah, we don't care that this guy caters to dictators. Yeah, we don't care that this guy lies every time he talks. We, we don't care. We just don't care. So those are the communities. And if those communities of ignorance, of those communities of white privilege, of those communities who are dumb enough to overwhelmingly vote for someone like that, you think they're going to be progressive enough? You think they're going to be open-minded enough? Unless the black coach that they hire for coaching their football team is the equivalent of success of an Urban Meyer or a Nick Saban when he got to Alabama or a Dabo Sweeney, unless that black coach is of that acumen or has that type of success, do you really think communities in regions of countries, uh, regions in this country, country who are dumb enough, selfish enough, insulated enough, and privileged enough to think that the fucking idiot that we have in the White House right now is the right choice? Someone who says that black lives don't matter in certain areas of that country, in certain areas of that community, who won't take the time to have inclusion, to have true equal opportunity, to say all of a sudden now, no, we're going to give up the we're going to give up the advantage of defining what racism is all about. You know, see those folks in Alabama and Louisiana and South Carolina and Mississippi and Tennessee and Kansas and Missouri. Not all of them, not all of them, not all of them, not all of them. Not everybody. So if you're yelling and screaming at me, I'm not like that, I'm not like that, I'm not like that. I voted for Biden. I believe in this, that, and the other. I went out marching and all those type of things. Then I ain't talking about you. God bless you. I feel sorry for you that you got to live in regions where you're living. I, I feel sorry that you got to live in states like that where you have the majority of people who do feel that way. So if I'm, if you're offended by that, then you shouldn't be because I ain't talking about you. I'm talking about your neighbor. I'm talking about the person down the street. I'm talking about the person over in the other neighborhood. I'm talking about the, uh, the, the those other folks, the ones who don't care about unity, the ones who don't care about democracy, the ones who don't care about the constitution, the ones who don't either they don't care or they're too ignorant or they're too blind or they're just or too uh, selfish or they're too stupid. Either ones. But the point is those people aren't going to be open-minded to give a black person a chance to run their football team. 
Those peoples, and I'm not talking about your typical, what many people think a racist would be. I'm talking about them folks who have boatloads of money, who own a lot of things, who have a lot of power, who have a lot of influence, who are college educated, who are incredibly smart businessmen, who are incredibly brilliant people in terms of businessmen and making money and other things. Those are the people that I'm talking about mainly. Those are the ones who definitely pull the strings. So when speaking about this, when thinking, speaking about this, no black head coaches in college football, you, you have to take a look at the regions, the geographics of where these places are. Athletic, Alabama's athletic director, Greg Bryan, speaking about white privilege to run amok. I mean, this guy is just overflowing with it. He doesn't even care. Who knows? He probably doesn't even realize how, how he's spewing his white privilege and the folks who are listening to him speaking don't even realize how brazen he is with his white privilege when speaking about diversity because he was he says that uh, he believed that the university of the fan base at Bryant Denny, Denny Stadium is increasing but he said that pinning down that information in terms of why there aren't any black head coaches or whether or not more black head coaches in college football, pinning down that information is well down the list of priorities of the modern sprawling athletic department. He says, as an athletic department, we have 20 plus teams and our staff isn't any bigger than that, than what an NBA organization would have for two teams. Many NBA organizations operate NBA and WNBA teams. So that's what he's saying. He says that we deal with academics, pro teams don't deal with that. We deal with compliance. We deal with recruiting. They don't deal with those things until you've been on campus and realize Half the time, you're just trying to keep your head above water. You got 650 18 to 22-year-olds in issues that come along with that. You got you you got not one coaching staff or two coaching staff. You got not one, uh, two coaching staff. You have 16 coaches staff to deal with. To be honest, I think part of it is, I think part of it is just there are just things that have never really been a priority. I think collecting good, solid demographic background on your fan base has not been a big enough priority, but I think it's challenging. So how about that? So basically he's saying that, yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of, yeah, you know, I, I realize that there's an issue with blackhead coaches that they're not getting the opportunity, but that's not really our priority. So when this clown is up there talking about there's no priority, which means that he really don't give a fuck. <laughs> yeah, I know that... Uh, we don't have enough, you know, blackhead coaches, but, you know, what the fuck you want me to do? Nah, that's their problem, not mine. I got other things to deal with. Fuck you, man. How about that? How about that? From one black man to another, fuck you. That's my priority. My priority is to take the bullshit that you just said and say, shove it up your ass. White privileged motherfucker. Of course you're going to be saying some shit like that. Doesn't matter. Doesn't bother you. Doesn't matter to you. You don't have to worry about that. Mother you don't have to worry about that, do you, Greg? You don't have to worry about getting an opportunity. You don't have to worry about that because you're because you're qualified and you're white and you're a male. Bing, bang, boom. You're in. So you don't have to worry about that. So this nonsense about we've got, you know, we have to deal with this and we have to deal with that. Well, what the hell are your coaches for? What the hell are, what the, we got compliance, we got, what, you're the only people, you're the only, you're the only administrators on campus? Come on, man, give me a fucking break with that bullshit. You don't give a fuck. Again, is Greg Bryan going to sit here and say, well, you know, I don't think black head coaches, I don't think there's black head coaches in college football because I just don't think black, I don't think black males are smart enough to uh, be head coaches. 
I mean, he ain't out campaigning himself. So, yeah, I don't think Greg Bryan, is this guy's name? Greg Bryan, right? That's the athletic director for uh, Alabama. Yeah, so I don't, I don't think Greg Bryan is a racist in terms of, yeah, we don't hire black people as head coaches for football because they're just not good enough. They're just not qualified. The white man is a more qualified person to run a football team than a black man. So that, Greg Bryan isn't saying that. So I'm not going to label Greg Bryan a racist, but I am going to say that this motherfucker is overflowing in white privilege and ignorance concerning this matter because of his blase, hey, you know what? It's just not our priority right now. We've got other things to worry about. That's arrogance. That's ignorance. That's astoundingly truthful. And the thing is, that's probably, mostly, I can't say guaranteed because I've never talked to any of the athletic directors about it, but if you got them behind closed doors and let them speak with each other upon the matter and you didn't have cameras and you didn't have uh, microphones and you didn't have anybody else and you had all of those athletic directors and that conversation or that topic broached, was broached, that's probably the type of tenor, that's probably around the same type of uh, thought process that would be into uh, that would be happening. Not just with Alabama. I'm quite sure it would be the same in Auburn and Mississippi and Mississippi State. I don't know these athletic directors if they came in here and saved my life right now. But I'm quite sure the tenor of the conversation would be basically what Greg Bryan is talking about. Yeah, does it suck that black people aren't getting jobs as head coaches? Yeah, I mean, it's, I wish there were opportunities for those guys. But, you know, right now, that's just not our, on our priority list. You know, we, we just can't worry about that right now. And again, it goes back to, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm doing enough. Just because, I mean, just don't judge me on one thing. Just because I don't hire a black man or a football coach, don't sit up there and talk about I'm not doing this and that and the other for black people. I'm bringing these kids onto campus. I'm having uh, people in my department who are black getting paid and putting their kids through college and putting a roof over their head and food on the table. So and don't don't go there with me. Don't go there with me. I'm not, I'm not going to go there with you. But I am going to go there with the opportunity to criticize that bullshit laissez-faire type of arrogance that you showed in terms of, hey, you know what, just uh, we got a lot of things to deal with. And making sure that black coaches who are qualified get equal opportunities to become head coaches in college football, eh, maybe we'll check on that. Maybe we'll deal with that. But see, white folks all throughout history, for those who have been oppressors or for those who really haven't understood what real progress needs to be, they've always had that type of uh, kick the can down the road mentality. Ah, right now we're just busy. Yeah, yeah, I know. Damn, that's Jim Crow. Yeah, it sucks. You know, it came, went back to, you know, black players. Why isn't back in the 50s and 60s and such? Man, why aren't there any black players playing football or basketball at these Southern schools? Yeah, you know, just, just, you know, I, I understand. We should, we really should. But, you know, right now, we just got some other things to deal with. And, I mean, you know, they can go through the, you know, historically black colleges. It's not like they can't go to college at all. So, I mean, hey, you know, it just we'll, we'll, we'll get to it when we get to it. You know, that's just the deal. Same thing. Same thing. Same thing now in 2020. You know, hey, it's just not a priority. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Some coaches, I'm quite sure in college, head coaches think that progress is being made because, again, hey, take a look at my staff, all the uh, black coordinators I have. On the offensive side of the football, there's plenty of black 
running back and wide receiver coaches. In fact, 65 programs at the Power 5 Conference, 49 of them have black running back coaches. Great, fabulous, wonderful. There's only one fucking problem with that. The coaching positions are not as prominent, a running back coach is not as prominent of a position as, say, the quarterback coach, which leads to more upward mobility towards being a head coach. That's just applicable for both college and pro. I mean, how many pro coaches do we see in the NFL right now who have a quarterback's coach background? Not excluding those who just came from the Sean McVay tree when Sean McVay a couple of years ago, everybody was looking for the next Sean McVay, a young, energetic, white, offensive uh, uh, football coach. So, I mean, Zach Taylor got a job and Matt LaFleur got a job and Charles Nagy got a job and all of these guys from the Matt, uh, from the, um, from the Sean McVay tree, who kind of, that cookie cutter, who kind of fit that mold. Cliff Kingsbury, because of that, got a job with Arizona, you know, think outside the box. He's young, he's energetic, he's halfway decent looking for his age. And like I said, a white man and this, that, and the other. So, the offensive mind, offensive guru, could work well with the quarterbacks, has quarterback coaching experience and everything like that. Remember that? time period, that short time period, that one-off season where it looked like everybody was hiring those type of coaches. Well, how many black coaches are there which are quarterback coaches? How many black coaches out there in college football in the Power Five conferences are offensive coordinators? And how many of those qualified offensive coordinators, uh, Clemson's Tony Elliott, still hasn't been able to get himself a job? How in the world can South Carolina who's right up the road, down the road, within the same state of Clemson, they're looking for a coach because Will Muschamp, who, oh, I don't know, not only did he fail at Florida, this guy, even before Florida, was supposed to be the coach in waiting for the job at Texas when Matt Brown retired. Matt Brown retired before Will Muschamp showed any type of head coaching acumen. He was already supposed to be that guy who was going to take over the esteemed college football program at the University of Texas. So when he decided not to wait any longer, he got the job at Florida, he bombed. Then he got a job at South Carolina, he bombed. And I'm quite sure if he wanted to, he could probably get a job before Tony Elliott or the uh, coach at Notre Dame who's uh, offensive side of the ball, who's right now, um, he's right now grooming Tommy Reese, a longtime black coach from the offensive side of the football, who's not a running back coach. So a lot of times these white coaches will hire these running back coaches and hire these black guys for these positions, not with the not with the reasoning of they're possibly them moving up the ladder to become an offensive coordinator within the next leap of being a college football head coach. No, a lot of these coaches who are black, who are hired by these coaches in the Power Five conferences, they're just there to help out the black players who come from these black lower class communities. That's what they're there for. They're there to relate. So if they need somebody to look to look upon, if they need somebody to talk to, if they need just to see somebody with the same looking face, same skin color as them, that's where the assistant coaches run in who are black. That's what they're there for. If you always notice with the uh, basketball, basketball is really obvious. It don't matter if there's a team out there coaching in Montana, in at Montana State, Boise, <sighs> I mean, you could think the whitest communities out there where there's a university or where there's a basketball uh, team at that university, you will always find as an assistant coach 
a black man. Not the head, not the not the associate head coach, not the main head coach, but he's on that staff because if you're going to be bringing these kids up to a place where it's predominantly white, and you have these kids coming from predominantly black areas, well, then you're going to need that coach who's black, who's on your staff, to be able to talk to them, to be able to make sure that they're all right and everything's going to be all right. The coach, the white coach, sometimes, most of the time, can't even bother to go ahead and do that. Can't even bother to go ahead and see what they can do to ease the transition from going to one environment to something that's completely different in terms of their environment. Man, we're talking about 18 to 22-year-old kids. So these coaches hire these, these blackhead coaches, put them at the wide receiver, you know, put them in charge of the wide receivers or the defensive line or the running back coaches. But no, they're not, that's not a position where you can you know, then lead to being an offensive coordinator or a, or a head coach the overwhelmingly uh, overwhelmingly uh, percentage of the time. And yeah, it's easy for the white head coach to have a relationship with the black head coach who's going to be a first-round draft pick, who's helping you win football games, who's Heisman Trophy candidates, who are making All-American teams, who are helping you win games, which means that you can get that raise, you can get that opportunity, but possibly go somewhere else to better your financial situation. So yeah, those coaches, those white head coaches will be buddy-buddy and chum-chum and they're just like a second son to be and all these other things. Oh yeah, they'll do that with the star player. But what about that What about that redshirt freshman who's, who's struggling, who's away for the first time, who's not contributing, who's not being a part of the success on the field day in and day out? What are you doing with that player, coach? What are you doing to ease his fears and ease his uh, anxieties about being away from home and being a totally different environment, coach. What are you doing with that? Oh, I, I forgot. You're not doing anything. You're telling the black assistant coach to make sure that he's doing all right. And depending upon the death chart, the the, the, uh, the, the death chart, if he's not doing all right, if he needs to, to transfer, get him the fuck out of here. I've got two or three other four-star recruits coming in. I don't need his ass. So that's the black coach in those situations, again, are being... I wouldn't say being used, but if those coaches are looking to eventually become head coaches, head coaches, it's not going to happen uh, at the position that they're in right now. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us just finishing up this. And again, Ivan Mazel, he did a great piece, did an awesome piece in terms of um, these deals. In fact, he was talking about, you know, what I wrote about, you know, why there weren't any black head coaches in 1992. Now I revisit this topic almost 30 years later and seems like some of the same shit that's been going down in 1992 at the reasons why there aren't any black coaches it seems like those reasons are still evident and uh, prevalent here in 2020 so in 28 years exactly what have we done in 28 years how far have we come now again i'm quite sure those who are going to sit there and talk about oh here he goes Oh, Wendell playing a race card again. Oh, Wendell with his all blacks are being this, that, and the other oppressed. Oh, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you'll point to Kevin Sullivan. You'll point to David Shaw. You'll point to Derek Mason, who again was a failure after seven years and gave him seven years. It's not like they gave him one year and then he was fired. You'll point to Sylvester Croom, who was the coach at Mississippi State. You'll point to Kevin Summerlin, who not only got the job at Texas A&M, but after that went kaput, where he was justified being fired, he got another position at the uh, at Arizona and 
the way that season's going for them right now. If he gets fired from that job, I can't blame them for doing that either. So you'll you'll they'll, they'll point they'll point and talk about hey look you know in the Pac-12 you've got a decent amount of coaches who are black you know coaching the football teams in the Big Ten you've got a decent amount James Franklin had been there with Penn State Lovey Smith has endured some rough seasons with Illinois he's still coaching. I mean, they'll, they'll be pointing to a lot of places like that where it's kind of like, so what the fuck are you talking about where what was me college football needs to have more black head coaches, especially in the Power of Five conferences? Seems to me like they're doing quite well. Seems to me like they're doing quite fine. So what the fuck are you talking about? Great. We've, we've made some distance. We've done some things differently. We've improved. We've advanced from 1992 to 2020. Fabulous. Wonderful. Way to go. But it ain't enough. It ain't nearly enough, nearly, nearly enough. And the progress that we've made has been embarrassing and not strong enough by any stretch of the imagination. Because the minute, the minute that we think that this problem is not a problem, instead of 13 black head coaches, we'll be back down to four, three, and two within a matter of two to three years. Easily. If we don't keep bringing this up, and when I say we, I'm not saying just black folks. I'm talking about also folks of every, from from every race getting on this. So it's 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 frustrating. Again, just because we've made some Ruffa McNeils at East Carolina, some Randy Shannons at Miami, was it because we've done that? Charlie Strong's at Texas, Tyrone Willingham's at Notre Dame's. That's, that's great, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a problem. There's a big problem because the numbers do not lie. Stanford's done great. David Shaw has won more games and conference titles than any other black head coach in the history of college football. I mean, guess what? Uh, the black head coach in the history of football, but he hasn't even won 100 games yet. But he was Guess what? He was the offensive coordinator for Jim Harbaugh when he got that job. David Shaw, who had Stanford ties, before being a coach there, even before getting on the coaching staff, I'm quite sure if he was in a different situation and started his coaching career somewhere else, especially if we're speaking about some of those more conservative states, you think David Shaw would have been a head coach by now? Do you think David Shaw would have been given the opportunity to be one of the better head coaches over the past five or six or seven or eight years? I don't think so. I don't think so. So a lot, there's been progress. There's been progress as far as black head coaches in college football. But if we're speaking about where we need to go, how far do we need to go? We, we need to go a lot farther because still, you're speaking about these numbers. It's embarrassing. It's pathetic. Things have got to change. Designed to make you feel good, Sandy. I hear something saying.
Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Let the sound of the man working on the chain gang. Let the sound of the man he's working on the chain gang. Ah, ah. Special dedication again. Sam Cook, Otis Redding, 57th and 53rd year. Today, the passing of two of the greatest. Legendary performance Talking about them in just a little bit But right now, speaking about what's going down in the NBA You know the season starts in two weeks Damn That is right around the Kona And James Harden still wants out of Houston He's making it known in many different ways He's playing his empowerment card, man Playing the empowerment card He didn't report to the Toyota Center For the COVID-19 testing until uh, Tuesday Two days after the Rockets held their first team practice, and we had P.J. Tucker talking about, look, I'll ask, I'll answer any questions y'all want to about T.J. Tucker. I ain't answering anything else about anybody else. Eric Gordon, I ain't answering these questions. Steven Silas, the head coach, the new head coach, is like, I got no updates, man. I have no idea. He hasn't texted me. He hasn't called me. He hasn't done anything. Y'all are asking, well, what you heard from James? What about James? This, that, and the other about James? I have no fucking idea. I've got, I don't know, about 11 other guys, 14 other guys, how many how many players who are in camp, i got them to worry about. I can't be figuring out what's happening with James Harden right now. So James Harden is putting everybody, the organization was like, hey, we're not, we're not uh, afraid to get uncomfortable. Well, congratulations, you're uncomfortable. And James Harden took that as a challenge. Like, oh, really? Oh, you're going to come at me like that? When I ask for a trade to Brooklyn, get me out of here, you're going to come back with, well, we ain't. We ain't scared of being uncomfortable. Okay. All right. Challenge accepted. Um, Yeah, he didn't report for testing until Tuesday. So now he must have six consecutive negative COVID tests before the NBA could even allow him to practice with the team. So we're talking about Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. So we're going to be moving into next week before James Harden is even eligible to go ahead and practice. Even if he had a change of heart, even if he uh, found Jesus in this matter and said, I acquiesce and I'll go ahead and I'll be committed and I'll do whatever and this, that, and the other. He still can't uh, reunite because it feels so good with his teammates until later on next week. He missed his first practice because of COVID-19 protocols. Mentioned before, Stephen Salas, no idea. Haven't heard from him, no communication, no nothing. So what was all of this? What was going on with James Harden instead of him showing up for practice? Was he doing some individual work himself on his game? No. Was he uh, kicking back and, you know, doing something to help him become a better basketball player and a better teammate and following the guidelines set by the NBA in terms of uh, following COVID regulations in terms of keeping that pandemic, keep, keeping that virus away from them? No. Harden, just to make sure that this wasn't a rumor, posted pictures on Instagram, on his Instagram over the weekend that showed him attending rapper Little Baby's birthday party in Atlanta without wearing a face mask. So this man was in a club surrounded by multitudes of people, none of these stupid motherfuckers were wearing a mask. 
And he posted it on Instagram. Again, the NBA requires players to quarantine at home the past week other than testing at team facilities, individual workouts, and essential activities such as grocery shopping. James Harden is in Atlanta partying. Then he goes over to Vegas and he continues to party. And James Harden also has a pre-existing condition. He has asthma, which makes him even more vulnerable to the, to the, the virus. And this fucking clown is out here up there partying in a room full of people. This guy goes to a baby shower and the idiot, this rapper, this idiot who's having this child, he's up there in a place in a condensed area with people surrounded by people with no masks. How fucking stupid and irresponsible are you? Goodness gracious sakes alive. And James Harden is right there. So I, I don't I don't know exactly. Basically, he's a breach of contract. Basically, he's just telling the uh, league to go fuck themselves in terms of the uh, required requirements that they have for this guy. So, unbelievable. After Wednesday's practice, the Rockets remain uncertain about where when Harden is going to be cleared to practice. And they're waiting word from the NBA about the uh, COVID-19 protocols following the uh, following Harden's holdout from training camp. So they don't know exactly what they're going to do. They don't know if the NBA is going to find them. They don't know if the NBA is going to say, look, you know, we'll throw in terms of any punishment that you're going to give for what Harden did. You know, I'm, we're going to throw that to you guys because if it throws it to uh, the Rockets, they ain't going to do nothing. You think they're going to do anything to punish James Harden for doing this? I don't think so. The Rockets owner... Tillman Fertitta, he's insisting on, he went on CNBC and was talking about this is the team, the team has done nothing in terms of trying to uh, trade him. And he said that he's done nothing but gotten better in the offseason in terms of his team is concerned, adding his hope for Harden to win a title in Houston. So as of right now, from the owner, I mean, I don't know what the GM and coaches, I don't know what type of, um, I don't know what type of meetings, or I don't know what type of conversations that they're having, but Tillman Fertitta is talking about, yeah, in the offseason with the acquisition of John Wall and Christian Wood and a couple of others, we've gotten ourselves better. So, yeah, we're in a better position to win the title this season than we are last season. Tillman, are you fucking serious? You're not even close. You think John adding John Wall and Christian Wood, a nice player, a good player, John Wall, we don't know what type of players he's going to be. We, we know that he's not going to be the John Wall that you're hoping that he's going to be. You really think that that team in Houston is better than the Lakers, is better than the Nuggets, is better than the Jazz, is better than the Clippers? You really think that? Really? You really think that they're better than an up-and-coming Memphis Grizzlies team? You think that they're significantly better than Phoenix now that they added Chris Paul? You really think that this is the squad that's going to be able to bring James Harden to titles? Do you think James Harden is going to take a look at this team with John Wall, P.J. Tucker, Christian Wood, Eric Gordon, and be like, oh, yeah, now we're rip-roaring ready to go. Watch out, Lakers. LeBron and AD, fear, you better fear us. Fear the beard and, our, and, my, uh, and my background singers. We're rip-roaring ready to go. The Houston Hardens are going to be, you know, are going to be shocking the world. Of course not. That man ain't dumb. The man was born at night, not last night. What is this guy? What is Tillman Fertitta talking about? So here's the thing that I'm thinking about on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast with your host, Wendell Wallace. That's me. What Harden is doing 
with this nonsense, with him going out, acting a fool, acting irresponsible. And when I say act of, acting a fool, I mean, look, if you want to hold out, if you want to express your disappointment and mispractice and miss the opening and miss the media and all that, that kind of stuff, I get that. I, I, I understand that. But for you to go ahead and act so irresponsibly in terms of going to clubs and going out without the you know violating the rules set forth by the NBA concerning protocols for COVID nineteen, what it makes it makes no sense to me. All you're doing is hurting not just the team, the franchise. You're also hurting yourself. Why, in the name of our Lord and Savior, would any team be interested in signing James Harden right now after showing so much irresponsibility, so much? selfishness like i mentioned before james harden wants to stay home and and and, and pout and, and do those type of things he's in his every right and in a way you know i i can understand it he wants to be traded he's been there eight years he wants to he's 31 years old going to be 32 he wants an opportunity to play for a championship he's turned down the opportunity to make around 50 million dollars a year on an extension in the future he's clearly giving you the sign that he's not interested and then he hears these clowns talking about we're not afraid to make things uncomfortable and we hear the owner talking about we're a better team now with some of the moves that we've made i can see james harden sitting there going man what the fuck are you serious that's understandable but to do the things that he's doing now if you're the Brooklyn Nets, you really want to deal with that issue? If you're the Philadelphia 76ers, you really want to deal with that issue? If you're the Milwaukee Bucks or the, especially the Miami Heat, the Miami Heat, you really, with the culture that they have, you really want to deal with that? You really want to deal with that bullshit? And that's just on the surface. So I don't know. I mean, why, again, I, I, I don't know. Why would any team trade for James Harden right now? Especially with the leverage, the fact that he's making it difficult for the Houston Rockets in terms of trying to get top dollar for the guy. I mean, if he really, really, really wanted to be traded, I mean, really wanted to be traded, he would say, look, I'm going to come to camp. I'm going to ball. I'm going to be a good teammate. I'm going to do what Melo did when he was with Denver. When Melo was like, look, I'm going to go play for the New York Knicks. I don't want to play for anybody else. It had nothing against Denver. I enjoyed my time in Denver, but... You know, I just want to go ahead and play where I want to play and do what I want to do. Mello didn't do any holdouts. Mello didn't act a fool. Mello didn't bring negative attention to himself in terms of doing things stupid. He wasn't at a club. He wasn't doing anything reckless. He came in, he played ball. And I'm quite sure Denver was thankful for that because it's like, okay, now we've seen what Mello can do. Now let's, let's go ahead and talk to teams or at least talk to the New York Knicks and get this done. If James Harden came down and said, look, I don't want to play here. I don't want to play here. Could you please, please do your best to get me out of here? And the Rockets finally acquiesced and said, all right, all right. Just, just work with, just work with us, please. And we'll do our best. James Harden said, thank you. Now I'm going to give y'all, you know, a little bit of time. I'm going to be a good soldier. I'm going to play my, you know, play my ass off, play hard and do everything like that. So my trade value can remain high but if we if it's still game 20 25 30 and i'm still here then i'm gonna have to reconsider my actions in terms of my thoughts and feelings about trying to get out of here in terms i might have to escalate the uncomfortable factor 
for me to get out of here. But look, for the first X amount of days, weeks, whatever games that I'm going to play, I'll play hard, I'll play my ass off, and I'll play great, which will only increase my trade value, my ass, and you and the team itself will be, be able to get assets. But what he's doing now, if I'm a team that's even interested, I'm not going to be giving up top dollar for uh, anything to get back James Harden. Because the way James Harden is acting, he's putting Houston in a difficult position to try to get top dollar. Why? You're going to have me give up a... Uh, a, a cornerstone player and a bevy of draft picks. Why? So I can get a, so I can get a guy who's going to be uh, going to nightclubs without a mask. That's what you want me to do. A guy who's 31 years old, who in a couple of years, I'm going to probably have to pay what somewhere in the neighborhood of 45 to 50 million dollars for four for four years with an option. That's that's exactly what you want me to uh, give up my future on right now. I don't think so. So if I'm James Harden, just just kind of calm down a little bit and kind of help your trade value. At least in the preseason. In the preseason, go out there and ball. You know, do your thing. And make it easier for the Houston Rockets to uh, load you. As of right now. But right now, he's making it different, difficult for himself. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So what James Harden is doing the folks like to say it's called a uh, it's called empowerment, player empowerment. You know, players leveraging their power to get what they want, whether it be through trades, coaching decisions, free agency signings, practice travel decisions, access to uh, some of their homeboys and their families and friends. You know, agents and such. Can the can my homeboys you know have access to the players' lounge? Can my homeboys or my friend or my masseuse or my chef or my personal trainer or my agent can they be on this road trip with me and fly on the you know fly on the team plane and do all this kind of stuff and get first class and accommodations and all those type of things that's player empowerment and it's for the superstar many people say many people call that player empowerment i call that superstar empowerment regular players don't get that you know, Rudy Hachimura of the Washington Wizards are not going to be deciding who gets fired, who gets hired, who brings in, who they bring in as a free agent. Rudy Hachimura of the Wizards is not going to be consulted on what trades are being made. Rudy Hachimura is not going to be deciding on whether they practice or not, how long are they going to be staying over in this city before they have to go out. What time is practice? How hard is practice is going to be? Rudy Hachimura, Troy Browns Jr., uh, uh, Troy Brown, yeah, uh, Davis Bertans, th- those guys, uh, Thomas Bryant, those guys for the Wizards have no say in the matter on any of those things, and their players. Bradley Beal, on the other hand, for the Wizards, he's basically, even with Russell Westbrook on the team, he's basically running that franchise. So he's going to be the one that's going to be consulted. You don't think that he was consulted in terms of when um, Tommy Shepard, the GM, was on the um, was on the thought process of trading James uh, John Wall for Russell Westbrook. You don't think he ran that by Bradley Beal? You don't think that whatever direction that they go in terms of the head coach, you don't think Bradley Beal is going to have a say in that moving forward, especially not signing a, uh, uh, an extension. 
You think that Davis Bertans, you know, that, that free agency, you don't think they went to Bradley Beal first and say, how much do you want this guy on the team? You think during this season that Bradley Beal is not going to have a say in how long this team is going to practice, when they're going to practice, what foods are going to be served, what hotels, and what whatever they're going to be, you know, what accommodations are going to be afforded them? You don't think that whenever, whatever person you want to have access to the facilities, you don't think the Wizards are going to give that to them? Same thing with Giannis in Milwaukee. I mean, that's just, that's just par for the course. Superstar empowerment. It's completely acceptable. There's precedent all throughout team sports history. Magic Johnson telling Pat Riley how long practice is going to be. I remember reading a book, Showtime. I think uh, Jeff Perlman wrote a book about the Lakers and their dynasty. And they were talking about one time, you know, Pat Riley. This is when Pat Riley was winning championships. This is not when he first took over from Paul Westfall and went straight from the uh, broadcasting booth with Chick Hearn to coach the team. No, no, no. This was a situation where this is where Pat Riley became, was now known as Pat Riley. And he got the Lakers together. At the time, they're winning championships. They're doing well and everything like that. So he got the Lakers all together before practice. And right before he was going to practice, he said, now, fellas, we're going to work hard. We're going to try hard. We're going to do everything. We're going to have three-hour practice today. And it's going to be this and it's going to be that. And Magic interrupted them. He said, no, 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 coach. We're not going three hours. We're going an hour and a half. Riley was like, no, no, we're not. We're going three hours. We're going to do and, and, and Magic was like, no, no, we just got off back to back. We're not doing three hours. We're doing an hour and a half. Riley kind of paused a little bit and said, all right, we're going to do an hour and a half. But I tell you one thing, we are going to work hard. We are going to do this and we're going to do that. And as they were walking away to get ready for practice, Magic kind of looked at one of the teammates and said, yeah. That's what I thought. In terms of, yeah, if I if I say that we're going to practice for only an hour and a half, guess what? We're practicing for only an hour and a half, coach. And I don't give a damn how many championships that you've won. And this is Pat Riley we're talking about. This is not some rookie coach. So power, superstar empowerment has been happening for a long time. Great story. Speaking about player empowerment, Bill Belichick, when he was the assistant coach, defensive coordinator with the New York Giants, and he told the story about Lawrence. This is one of the best stories I've heard concerning this. And this is when Lawrence Taylor was, you know, doing a thing, NFL MVP, all-star linebacker, you know, godlike linebacker and everything. So it was a Friday meeting before the game. Team came in, offense, defense, special teams, whatever. Parcells, you know, gave the speech and this, that, and the other. Lawrence Taylor was there for that, this, that, and the other, on time, no big deal. Right, so after the team meeting was over, the team broke up into their groups, offense, defense, special teams, whatever, right? So Belichick, you know, got the defense, brought them in, and started going over the game plan, this, that, and the other. The meeting was five minutes in, still no Lawrence Taylor. Lawrence Taylor comes, you know, walking in five, six minutes late, kind of moves to the uh, back of the uh, back of the uh, the uh, the classroom or wherever they were doing it, and Belichick didn't stop or didn't do anything. He just kept going and going over the game plan, and this is what we need to do, and these are our keys, and when they do this, we're going to do that, this, that, and the other. So when the meeting was over, Belichick goes up to Parcells, and he says, uh, you know, Coach, just to let you know that uh, Lawrence Taylor, was LT, was about five or six minutes late to the meeting. Parcells looked at him and said, yeah. Well, Belichick's like, I just, I just thought that you might want to know that. Parcells looked at him and said, Why'd you start the meeting? Why'd you start the meeting without him? 
Superstar empowerment right there. Red Auerbach, the great coach for the Boston Celtics. What, eight, nine, champ, 11 championships or whatever. How many championships he won? Eight championships, whatever. One day, Bill Russell came up to him and said, Coach, I don't feel like practicing today. I played 48 minutes last night. I'm tired. Not really in the mood to practice. Red Auerbach said, okay, no problem. So here at the Celtics, Sam Jones, Casey Jones, Johnny Havlicek, Seth Sanders, they're up there, you know, practicing hard, running wind sprints. Bill Russell is up there in the bleachers reading in the paper and sipping coffee. So Sam Jones goes over to Red Auerbach and he says, hey, Red, why is it that we're up here working hard, running wind sprints, doing all this type of stuff, and Russell's up there chilling, drinking coffee and reading the paper? Sam Jones didn't say chilling, but you, you, get, my, you get my drift. Red Auerbach blew the whistle. Said, everybody, come on in. Come on in here real quickly. I need to let you guys know, uh, I need to let you guys know one thing. There's two sets of rules on these on this team. There's one for him, and he pointed to Russell, and there's one for the rest of you guys. Do I make myself clear? All right, thank you very much. You go you guys go back to working. Russ, you go back up into the uh, stands and relax. Superstar empowerment. Superstar empowerment. Will Chamberlain letting the coach you know. Bill Sharman, the inventor. Head coach, 1971-72 of the Los Angeles Lakers. Won 69, what, 68 games or some shit like that. Won 33 games in a row. He was the inventor of the morning shoot-around. We get into the arena. We get used to the court, the basket, and everything like that. We run through a few set plays, and we're good. And we'll see you guys later on tonight. That was Bill Sharman when he would get into uh, when he would get into a city where the Lakers were going to play. Well, Chamberlain was on the team. Bill Sharman told one of the ball boys or whatever, you know, go to Wilt's room and let him know that uh, practice is going to be, the shoot-around tomorrow at the arena is going to be at 9 o'clock in the morning, whatever, just an arbitrary time. It's going to be at the 9 o'clock tomorrow. So the ball boy runs over to Wilt's room, knocks on the door. Wilt answers the uh, door, and the ball boy says, yeah, Coach Sharman wants me to let you know that the shoot-around tomorrow is going to be at 9 a.m. Wilt looked at him and said, well, you tell Coach, I'm only going to the arena once. Does he want me there for the shoot-around, or does he want me there for the game? Because I ain't going to both. So he can either have me for the shoot-around, or he can have me for the for the uh, game. Goodbye. So, player superstar empowerment. Dallas Cowboys head coach Jimmy Johnson cut a player who once fell asleep in team meetings. You know, looks like you're... Uh, Looks like you're having a little trouble staying awake there. Why don't you uh, go home and get some rest? Jimmy Johnson cut him on the spot. Well, what would have happened if someone asked him, well, what would have happened if Michael Irvin would have been sleeping in a team meeting? Jimmy Johnson said, well, I would have gone over and told him to wake up. You mean you wouldn't have cut him? Hell no, I'm not going to cut him. I need that guy to win Super Bowls. What are you talking about? Superstar empowerment. So what James Harden is doing is, you know, in terms of, I want Kevin McHale fired. He's fired. I want you to bring in Dwight Howard. You bring in Dwight Howard. I don't want Dwight Howard anymore. They get rid of Dwight Howard. Bring me in Chris Paul. They bring in Chris Paul. I don't want Chris Paul anymore. They trade Chris Paul. In fact, I don't want Chris Paul. Instead, I want Russell Westbrook. So you can trade Chris Paul for Russell Westbrook. They acquiesced and did that. After one season, James Harden was like, I don't want Russell Westbrook anymore. They trade away Russell Westbrook. So it's like... That's hard, that's harsh, that's terrible. James Harden, after the All-Star break, doesn't want to practice at a certain time because he needs a few days off because of All-Star weekend. Guess who ain't practicing? 
uh, gets away practicing at that time. James Harden wants to stay in a particular city a little bit longer because he wants to go out and party a little bit more. Guess where the Houston Rockets are going to be spending the night? Right where James Harden wants them to be. So that's called superstar empowerment. Austin Rivers can't get away with that. P.J. Tucker can't get away with that. Jeff Green can't get away with that. None of those guys can get away with that. You don't think Russell Westbrook ran the Oklahoma City Thunder when he was there, especially after Kevin Durant left? You don't think that they bend over every way backwards for Russell Westbrook and, and bow down to his every want and need? Superstar empowerment. So, again, current players who have that ultimate superstar empowerment, you have LeBron, you have Steph, you have Giannis, you have Luka, Kawhi, KD, Damian Lillard up in Portland, Nikola Jokic down in Denver, Anthony Davis in L.A., and Harden. Those are the guys. Those are the guys who dictate everything. And they deserve it. They absolutely deserve it. The difference now between those players that I just mentioned, like LeBron and Steph and Kawhi and KD and Anthony Davis and maybe guys like Giannis and Luka and and some of those other guys and, and Nikola Jokic and maybe Jamal Murray. The only difference between those players with the ultimate superstar empowerment and James Harden is the fact that James Harden still hasn't won a championship. James Harden is still making about $41.2 million, and James Harden is 31 years old. It's been eight seasons of James Harden. No championships, no NBA finals, and big-time meltdowns and big games in the NBA playoffs. LeBron has won four NBA championships. He can do whatever the fuck he wants. Steph has won three NBA championships. A guy of very low maintenance, he can do whatever he wants. Giannis, who holds the entire franchise hostage by what he's going to do. You think Milwaukee, especially if he doesn't sign the contract extension by December 21st, you think Giannis, you think the Milwaukee Bucks are going to do anything to upset Giannis? You think they're going to be bold enough? You think they're going to be mentally strong enough to be like, to tell Giannis no whenever he wants something in this situation? I don't think so. Luka is still on a rookie's contract. He's a top five player in the NBA, a transformative, transcendent generational talent. You think Dallas is going to do anything to upset him? Same thing with Kawhi over with the Clippers. I mean, Doc Rivers already got himself fired because of how much he bowed down to Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi Leonard lived in San Diego. The LA Clippers, you know, Los Angeles. If Kawhi was at home in San Diego and the Clippers had a practice, guess who wasn't going to be showing up for practice? Or guess who was going to cancel practice? Wasn't going to be Doc. Wasn't going to be Lawrence Frank. It wasn't going to be Patrick Beverly. It wasn't going to be Lou Williams. It wasn't going to be Montrez Harold. It was going to be Kawhi Leonard. If Kawhi didn't want to play a certain night, guess whose call it was? Who was going to say, no, I'm sorry, you're playing? Uh, nobody. Kawhi signed a contract where in two years he could knock out. And everything that the Clippers invested to get him and Paul George, you think the Clippers are going to do anything? in terms to jeopardize the opportunity for Kawhi to say, yeah, you know what, I don't, I don't like the way you guys are treating me. Maybe I will go to the Lakers, or maybe I will go back to Toronto, or maybe I will go somewhere else. No, of course not. Ultimate superstar empowerment. But guess what? Kawhi Leonard has shown that if you kind of, you know, if you kind of, you know, work with him and, you know, you kind of give him that empowerment, he's going to reward you by winning a championship. Anthony Davis is going to reward you by winning a championship. 
Nikola Jokic is only 25 years old and is low maintenance. James Harden is 31 years old, a diva, making $41 million and disappears when the when they need the most in the playoffs. So it's, it's gotten to the point in Houston where it's kind of like, man, I can't fucking do this shit anymore, James. We've done everything for you. And now we basically you know, imploded our offense, imploded our team to basically fit around you. And now you're going to turn around and say, I want to be out of here. I want to go somewhere else. I mean, damn, man. I mean, I, we feel used. We feel abused. We feel taken. Imagine for the Houston Rockets, their feelings are hurt. Because you ain't going to get a player. You're, you're, you're In the trade, you're not going to get dollar for a dollar on James Harden. You're not going to get a dollar ten for a dollar on James Harden. Because guess what? James Harden is one of the top five or six players in the NBA. So if you were to get equal value, you would have to, what, maybe get back Giannis? You would have to get back Luka. You would have to get back AD. You would have to get back Dame. You would have to get back KD. You would have to get back one of those players. And guess what? Those franchises aren't giving up those players. So whenever you trade James Harden, you're not going to be getting dollar for dollar for the guy. So I, I know it's going to be tough. But look, James Harden, 31 years old, he's going to sign a contract extension for the next few, uh, next three or four years. For three or four years, two years down the road, he's going to sign an extension for three to four years, player option maybe after three, that's going to pay him somewhere around 45 to 50 mil. And I bet you in the year 2025, James Harden is going to be looked upon the same as we look upon Russell Westbrook, John Wall, and Chris Paul right now. Guys who are, <laughs> John Wall, we don't even know what he's going to be. What, we, what he's going to look like, but he's got an albatross of a contract that makes him virtually that made him virtually untradeable, or at least something in terms of helping out a franchise. The Houston Rockets with John Wall are stuck. The Washington Wizards with Russell Westbrook in his contract are stuck. Chris Paul with the Phoenix Suns short term are stuck because no one's going to be looking to uh, because Chris Paul when he's going to be making forty something million dollars at the age of thirty seven, his trade value is going to be nothing. When Russell Westbrook is 35 years old and he's going to be making 40-something million dollars, how can you build a team around something like that? So that's going to be James Harden in a couple of years. Whatever team he goes to, whether it be Philadelphia, whether it be Brooklyn, whoever it's going to be, just make sure that you know what you're getting at, that you know you might get the James Harden for a year or two or three. That's going to be wonderful. But when you're going to have James Harden for another Five, six, seven years. So the first two or three years might be great. But what's going to happen in the back end of that contract? Similarly to what the Anaheim Angels did when they signed Albert Pujols to a 10-year contract. Similar to what the Seattle Mariners did when they signed Robinson Cano to a 10-year contract. They signed these big-term contracts, and it's like, yeah, the first couple of years are going to be magnificent, but what's going to happen in the final four or five years? Well, he's not even going to be worth nearly the amount of money that you're being paid, that he's being paid. It's going to be the same thing with James Harden. So, superstar, ultimate superstar empowerment. It exists. Some players have demanded it. They get it. And um, they're, uh, you know, they're worthy of it. But be careful. Be careful, Houston. Be careful with that. Baby, that's my name now. Oh, 
Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things going down in the world of sports. Speaking about the James Harden situation. Speaking about James Harden and his player empowerment. I love that. And hey, look, man. You know what? Uh, people want to sit there and whine and, whine and complain and moan and all that type of situation. Situation where they're talking about James Harden. He's doing this and he's doing that. And I can't believe this and I can't believe that. You know, LeBron got killed for got killed for that for a long time. In fact, he still does. Not as much as when, you know, he first went out and said, I'm taking my talents to South Beach. And, oh, how dare he go ahead and he manipulate the system to where Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh are playing with them. And this is wrong. And this is horrible. And these teams and these guys now are, are, are getting together on the same team and creating these super teams. And there's no loyalty anymore. And these players don't have any type of connection and anything like that. Which is, which is complete bullshit because really for a lot of these guys, yeah, for the superstar talents, yeah, without question. If you're a top three, top four, top five player, yeah, you get that type of treatment. You get the, you know, when I say jump, you say how high treatment. But the high majority of these players, they're at the whims of the owners and the franchise. If the franchise wants to trade you, it doesn't really matter what your thoughts and feelings about it is. And a lot of these players and a lot of these guys who play on these teams you know they have charities they've you know built with good relationships with the community and they love what they're playing and their children and their wives love it and their children are going to school and they're embedded well in the community and if a team says well you know guess what we're going to send you to the worst team or we're going to send you to sacramento or we're going to send you to a place where you really don't want to go that player has no say in the matter at all i remember DeMar Rosen, DeMar DeRozan, when he was playing with the uh, Toronto Raptors. And, you know, there was talk about, hey, you know what, uh, you know, Kawhi Leonard, the, you know, the Raptors are talking to uh, San Antonio about a possible Kawhi Leonard for DeMar DeRozan trade and some other things. And DeMar went up to Yasai Majiri and was like, are you trading me and this, that, and the other? And Yasai looked at him and looked at him right in the face and said, no way, no way, no how, no way. And at the time, DeMar absolutely loved playing in Toronto. And after the whole Tracy McGrady and Vince Carter fiasco where those guys did everything humanly possible to get themselves out of uh, Toronto to be traded, and when Chris Bosh couldn't wait as a free agent to get out of uh, Toronto, there we have, actually have a player of some substance who said, no, I love it up here. I, I just love playing for the Raptors. I love the community. I love the country. I love everything about it. I want to retire. You guys signed me to a five-year, $128 million contract. So you show your loyalty. Now I'm going to show my loyalty, this, that, and the other. And as soon as Masai Ujiri looked him in the face and basically lied to him about, no, there's no no truth to the rumor or no truth to this. You're our guy. You're going to stay here and everything like that. That man was traded to San Antonio 
as quickly as uh, as can be. And DeMar DeRozan didn't have a say in it at all. So, yeah, when it comes to player empowerment and all those type of things, yeah, I don't blame players at all who want to sit there and say, you know what, this shit ain't working out. It's time for me to go. I tell you what, and for folks who are sitting up there talking about, I can't believe this, you know, what Anthony Davis did was so wrong and so horrible, and these guys who come out and say they want to be traded and this, that, and the other. If I'm a fan base, while I wish that there was a way for you guys to stay with the team because you you know because we love watching you play and you give us the best chance to win and everything I would rather have a player come up to me you know and say hey look I don't want to play her anymore I really want to go somewhere else or I prefer to go to this team but I want to let you know that when my time is up whether it be this near the end of this season at the end of this season or next season I'm just here to let you know that I'm not, I'm not going to resign I'm, I'm not resigning with the team so you guys do what you need to do, but I just want to let you know that I'm looking to go somewhere else. If Kevin Durant would have uh, done that, now I think that he's, his mind wasn't made up until the Hampton Five of uh, you know Steph and Clay and Steve Kerr and Draymond and those guys came up and convinced him to go to the Golden State Warriors. But if Kevin Durant had any type of inkling, even with... Even that last year where Oklahoma should have beaten the Warriors in the Western Conference Finals, if Kevin Durant would have been like at the beginning of the season, hey, look, you know, this is the last year of my contract and I'm not staying. I'm not going to stay. I appreciate everything that Oklahoma did and I think the organization is wonderful and my teammates are great, but, you know, I'm, I'm living in Oklahoma City. I'm not an Oklahoma City guy. I've kind of outgrown Oklahoma City, I have a place in LA, I have a place somewhere else, you know, I'm looking to kind of expand my horizons, I'm looking to live into, looking to live in a more cosmopolitan-like city, whatever the reason would be, I'm just not really interested, I'm not going to resign. If Kevin Durant would have let the Oklahoma City Thunder know that, then maybe there would have been a possibility for them to, you know, do something to, you know, make a better decision. Are we just going to ride this out, do what we need to do, try to get that championship, and then say, you know... It was fun. See you later. Or are we going to, knowing that Kevin Durant is not going to be resigning, do we go ahead and do we plan for the future? We trade him and we get some assets and bring something back? Because Oklahoma City lost him for nothing. And Oklahoma City still hasn't recovered from losing Kevin Durant. So would it be better for a player to say, hey, look, I'm not coming back. Trade me because I don't want to play here anymore. Or you'd rather have him say nothing. And then at the end of the season, he bolts for nothing. So those those are the situations in terms of, at least with James Harden, at least James Harden is showing the Rockets, look, I'm not resigning. I don't want to play here anymore. So let's see what we can do to help you out, to help me out. So Harden, is, Harden has expressed interest in a desire to play in Brooklyn or with Philadelphia. He would also be open to joining the Milwaukee Bucks or the Miami Heat. What's the matter, the, the Lakers and the Clippers? That you haven't come around to them yet? I think the most realistic team that could make a trade for uh, James would be Philadelphia. I really do. I don't think the Brooklyn Nets, in fact, according to the athletic Sharm Sharania, the Rockets reportedly wanted either Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving in talks with the Brooklyn Nets concerning a trade for James Harden. And if they couldn't get either KD or Kyrie, then the Rockets aren't interested in the deal at all. And that would be suicide even to bring it to anyone's attention. Could you imagine the brass for the Brooklyn Nets going up to Kevin Durant talking about, 
Yeah, I know that you came here because of a Kyrie Irving, but if we traded him for James Harden, how would you feel about that? Or going to Kyrie Irving and saying, hey, look, I know that you played, you were, you know, wanting to play with Kevin Durant, but, you know, the guy just tore his Achilles. We don't know what type of player he's going to be, and we get a chance to uh, get James Harden. What's your thoughts and feelings about that? Even if they, even if they broach that, that topic to any one of the, the, those two guys, either way, any way possible, as thin-skinned and as weird as Kyrie and KD are, you, you think that that Brooklyn experiment as far as with KD and Kyrie, that shit would be over even before I got a chance to uh, grow and see what would happen. If you went to any one of those guys and even broached the idea of, hey, you think that... uh. Do you think if we gave up KD and you played with James Harden, you think it would be better? I mean, you know, we're, you know we're, I'm on the phone. We're talking to the Rockets right now. And they said no deal for James Harden unless we either get you or KD. And we really like you. So what's your thoughts about KD? I mean, it, it would just be, it just wouldn't work. The Milwaukee Bucks don't make any sense for the Houston Rockets. Number one, I think Houston is like, well, you know, if Giannis is not going to sign and you need to trade him somewhere, We've got James Harden. I mean, you could have James Harden for two more years, and at least you can get something for nothing. But, you know, that, that Milwaukee, you know, they shot all, the, shot all their bullets when they went ahead and got themselves Drew Holiday. So the only thing that they could do with with the um, with the Bucks and the, and the Rockets, the only thing that they could do is to have the same package that they had for uh, uh, Bogdanovich and adding Chris Middleton. And that's not going to work. So I don't see... James Harden teaming up with Giannis. The Miami Heat, according to multiple reports, now the Heat and the Rockets have reportedly discussed a trade for Harden. And according to Greg uh, Slylander, Slyvander of five, five Reason Sports, say that 10 times, the Heat have yet to include Hero, Tyler Hero, in any trade offers. But we're speaking about James Harden here. So, you know, this is a situation where, look, it's been reported that Miami and Houston have had trade conversations surrounding James Harden, but up to this point, neither the Heat or the Buck or the um, Rockets have come to any type of package. Like I said, for Miami's standpoint, they're like, look, Tyler Hero is untradeable. Mm. James Harden? Hmm. <laughs> the Heat would have to get, would have to, you know, would need about $33 million in salary contracts for Harden's package. So you're speaking about Andre Iguodala, Kelly Olynyk, Tyler Hero, Kendrick Nunn, Duncan Robinson. Bam on the Bayou is off the table because of the NBA poison pill restriction, which means that if you sign a player to a contract extension during his rookie contract that uh, take the whole calendar year before they become eligible for a trade. So because of that, Bam on the Bayou is not eligible for any type of trade. So that just leaves us with the Philadelphia 76ers. So a possible trade would look like James Harden for Ben Simmons, Terrence Ferguson, a 2021 first-round draft pick, and a 2023 first-round draft pick, which would get somewhere close. But if you're Philadelphia, are you really going to trade Ben Simmons just yet? 24 years old, he's done a very nice contract for a guy, as I mentioned before, who you're going to have for at least five or six years. And the last couple of years might not look pretty. I mean, how is that going to work with Joel Embiid? We've seen Doc Rivers go hot and cold in terms of his relationship with superstar players. Rajon Rondo is weird, but he's not James Harden weird. So it's like, okay, Doc and Rondo had a pretty good relationship when Rondo was with the Celtics. 
But James Harden is in a space all to himself there. How would that work? And how would that dynamic work between James Harden and Joel Embiid? So I don't know. And Daryl Morey, look, Daryl Morey is the general is the general manager right now. So he's the guy that drafted Harden eight years ago, and he gave him the superstar empowerment. And it's almost a situation where, well, wait a minute. If Philadelphia says thanks but no thanks because of the fact that James Harden is 31, Ben Simmons is 24, Simmons could be a Giannis Adenokupo type of player if he could ever learn to shoot, not shoot a three-pointer, not become three-point proficient. But damn, if this guy could just learn how to shoot an 18 and 19 footer, a 15 footer, this guy had the ball handling skills and the imagination and the creativity and the skill to get to the rim and set things up for others or to score himself. He could be a Giannis and then the Kupo light. Also, he plays really good defense. He had defensive of the year type of mental, of, uh, of uh, attributes. And I mentioned before, he's on a good contract. If you're Philadelphia, even before seeing what we can do with Joel and Ben at the cornerstones of your team with Doc Rivers, NBA championship coach guiding the way, are you going to give that up already for James Harden? But then again, if you're any other, if you're any of the teams that are looking to trade a dark horse team, maybe a New York Knicks team, maybe a Denver Nugget team, anybody who James Harden had to mention who might be thinking about getting into the James Harden sweepstakes, if Daryl Morey turns down the opportunity to have James Harden in the organization, what does that say if I'm, for instance, the GM for the Denver Nuggets or the New York Knicks? Or the Chicago Bulls is like, well, wait a minute. If the guy who drafted, who traded for him and did everything for him, if he's not going to take him, and we think that the relationship between James and Daryl should be a lot stronger than anybody else that he could have a relationship with, why in the world then are we going to go ahead and uh, get him? So those are just things to think about concerning James Harden. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Paul George signed the max contract with the L.A. Clippers through the 2024-25 season. Now, according to ESPN, Adrian Wojnarowski, George has signed a maximum contract extension with the team that since that's going to make him $226 million through the 2024-2025 season. And his current salary this season is going to be 35.5. So, George, you were talking about, hey, you know what? I want to stay a Clipper. I want to retire, this, that, and the other. Well, you know, he got himself a deal. Now, he said that before when he signed an extension with the Oklahoma City Thunder. And then a year later, he was talking about his time to trade me. I think it's a lot different. He always wanted to get back to L.A. He's playing with a guy in, in Kawhi Leonard that uh, I think that he has, uh, that he likes to play with more. If you're speaking about whether he would rather play with Kawhi Leonard or before when he was playing with Russell Westbrook in Oklahoma City. And I also think that the Clippers have the have a better opportunity to win a championship, make it to the championship finals than when he was with the Oklahoma City Thunder. And, of course, again, the money that he's going to be making living in L.A., his home, his home state, kind of hard to turn down. So that's some NBA news. Now it's time to talk about the Georgetown Hoyas where we're just going to be blowing in the wind.
Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. We are descending on this podcast, so please put your seatbelts on. Please have your seats in the upright position. Trade tables should be seated up because we are going down, down, down toward the end of this podcast. But the ride down is going to be just so doggone wonderful. Let me start right now with my Georgetown Hoyas. Average week. With loss, but possible opportunities moving forward this season, no matter how long this basketball season lasts. I think in my next podcast, I'm going to address the words that Mike Krzyzewski was talking about in terms of, hey, look, you know what? We kind of need to put a stop to this season and kind of reevaluate and move on. I don't think that uh, Krzyzewski would say that because this team lost to Illinois and they're 2-2 and and all that kind of stuff. My only thing I would have to dispute with Coach is as much money as college basketball churns out and needs to make, especially when you're speaking about the NCAA tournament. I think, yeah, if you have a discussion after you cancel or you postpone the season a little bit, the powers that be are only going to come back and say, yeah, we need to start the season. They don't give a damn about these players, coach. Come on now, that's what I'm going to argue. You don't, you don't think the NCAA really gives a damn about these players when it comes to making money, do you? We've already seen in football how that uh, how that uh, is such a fallacy. But I'll get into that a little bit later on. But uh, speaking about the Georgetown Hoyas, lost to number 11 ranked West Virginia on Sunday afternoon, 80-71. to 71. For the game, Georgetown shot 40% from the field, 25-62, of 11-30 from the three-point line, which is around 36%. The... Mountaineers, on the other hand, shot 40%, 26 of 64 from the field, 6 of 17 from the three-point line during the game. Many people are sitting up there talking about, oh, man, this is great. This is wonderful. We we hung with the 11th-ranked team, and, you know, within six minutes of the game that we were in shouting distance of winning, and we had a chance to win, and it was a missed opportunity, and what could our season be if we would have won? And look, man, I mean, this season is not about that. The season's not about that. Look, we played West Virginia well. Each team had 43 rebounds. West Virginia had 13 offensive rebounds, but it wasn't by much. It was turnovers that killed us in the end. Kill, turnovers. Lost, Georgetown lost a turnover battle 15-5. to West Virginia had 21 points off those turnovers. Ball game. But I, I, I don't really care about winning and losing this season. I don't care that we play toe-to-toe with the number number 11-ranked team in the country for 55 minutes. I don't care. Number one, watching that basketball game, be honest, Georgetown fans, and I'm a bigger Georgetown fan than I think 99.8% of these people listening to my podcast, 
or even on walking this planet. Look, West Virginia knew it was going to win the game. They, did, they knew that they didn't have to play with the maximum effort and intensity to beat us. And that's the way they played in the first half. It was almost a situation like, yeah, you know, we left our intensity, we left our passion in Spokane, where we played the number one ranked team in the country, Gonzaga's, you know, we, we, we played them tough. So now we have to go from that to play you guys. We're not going to be given the same amount of effort. We're not going to be giving the same amount of energy. We're not going to be as focused or as intense because we know that when we put it up another level to trying a little bit harder, we know we're going to win. Because we know you guys don't have the talent. We know you guys don't have uh, what it takes to beat us. So that's what it was. There was never any point in the game, which I thought, that it was like, ooh, wow, man, we're going to have a chance to win this game. I, I knew once West Virginia said, okay, fuck it, time to put this game away, they would, and they did. I mean, our rotation for the game, Jamarco Pickett had 30 minutes. Javon Blair had 38 minutes. This is against West Virginia. Jalen Hurts had 30 minutes. Kudus Wahab, Wahab had 23 minutes. Don Carey had 35 minutes. Those were the starters. And then Dante Harris, the freshman, 10 minutes. Timothy Eagle Hefe, who thankfully didn't play against Coppin State, had 17 minutes. And Chudier Bal had 18 minutes. Those players who will be moving forward, the foundation forward, are Dante Harris, Dante Harris, Don Carey, and Kudus Wahab. The rest of those guys, I could give a fuck about. Pickett, Blair, those two guys have been with the program for four years. I, you know, I want to see those guys do well and everything. But look, man, it's, it's not about this season. Players who didn't play, Kobe Clark, Jabari Sibley, Colin Holloway, TJ Berger. I want to see those guys play. That's I would have rather seen, I would have rather lost with Kobe Clark, Dante Harris, Jabari Sibley, Colin Holloway, TJ Berger, seen somewhere anywhere between 5 and 15 minutes. From each one of those guys. Maybe not Sibley. He doesn't look ready yet. But I want to see Kobe Clark play. I want to see Colin Holloway play. After that Coppin State game, I want to see TJ Berger get an opportunity. Give him some minutes, coach, to see what they can do. Put him in a rotation. Let him go through the fire. Who cares if we lose by 5 or 50? A loss is a loss. We're not making the NCAA tournament. We're not sniffing the NCAA tournament. We're not close to participating in the NCAA tournament. We're not even close of even giving getting a sniff of the NIT. We're not any good. We're not any good. We're not any good. So why are we playing the season like we're trying to make the Final Four? Why are we playing all these seniors? Why are we playing Trudier Vile so much? Why are we playing Jalen Harris so much? Will we want to win? Who cares about winning this season, coach? Unless you go 0-25 and have a complete debacle, coach. Coach Ewing, you're not going anywhere. This season is all about building the foundation for next season. That's what I want. I don't mind Jamarco and Javon playing, you know, big minutes. I don't mind Jalen Harris getting solid minutes. But man, fuck Chudie Bile, man. I mean, come on now. I want to see Dante Harris more. I want to see TJ Berger more. The man came off the bench and gets Copper State and looked like he could shoot a three-pointer. Outside of Jamarco and Javon, who else on this team looks like they can do that? Don Carey hasn't made a three-pointer, I think, in a couple of days or a couple of games. I want to see these guys play. I don't care about wins or losses. Coach Ewing is out there again. It's, it's almost like it's almost like the JV coach in a high school. 
where if the JV coach is coaching like he's trying to win the, 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 the NBA championship, so he might play the JV juniors the large amount of time, and then the freshmen and the sophomores who need the minutes, who need the reps, who need the game experience, they're sitting on the bench because the JV juniors on the JV team are the ones who are going to you know, give the team a better opportunity to win the JV game. And the varsity coach comes up to the assistant coach and says, what the fuck are you doing? Why are you playing four guys who are going to be seniors next year that I have no use for? Play the freshman, play the sophomore, play the big kid, play the six, seven kid who can barely walk and chew gum. But by the time he gets to be a junior and puts on the, and puts on the varsity uh, uniform, he's going to be 6'10". I need him ready to play. Well, you know, he's 6'7", he can barely walk and chew gum at the same time. Yeah, that's why he's on the JV team, and that's why he should be getting 30 minutes a game. Because I want him out there getting ready to play. Why are we playing Chudier Biles so many minutes? Why are we playing Jalen Harris so many minutes? Put in Kobe Clark. Put in Jabari Sibley. Put in Colin Holloway. Put in TJ Berger and let them get their asses kicked. But at least they'll learn. At least they'll get their experience. At least they'll grow, hopefully. Especially in the season where we don't know how many games we're going to be able to play with because of COVID. We've already had to change Sunday's game between us and UConn. UConn hasn't been able to play yet because of COVID-related issues. So now St. John's is going to come in and play on Sunday. What For us to win, what we're going to have those guys, those freshmen not play again? Play the play the freshman coach, please. What what good is it going to be next season when we have Matumbo and Billingsley and Jordan Riley and T.J. Beard? Well, those guys are our foundation, sure, but they ain't the Fab Five. I mean, those guys are three and four star recruits. They ain't what Duke brings in on a regular basis or Kentucky brings in on a regular basis. Those guys aren't going to be able to step up and be able to lead our team to any type of postseason play just on their own. And we don't have Kobe Clark or Sibley or Colin Holloway or T.J. Berger getting the experience. What are you going to do? You're going to go out in the transfer portal and get three other seniors that are going to dominate all the minutes? You're going to beg and plead Javon Blair and Jamarco Pickett to come back for another year so they can take more time away from these guys who should be growing with the program so you can try to reach 500? Come on, coach. Coach Ewing, I love you, and I believe in you. I just want to see Kobe Clark play. Will they give us? The, they don't give us the best opportunity to win. I don't care. I don't care. They will give us the best opportunity to win next year. When guess what? Javon Blair and Jalen Harris and Jamarco Pickett and Chudie Bile aren't there. Get these young guys to play. Now against Coppin State, they won eighty to forty-eight. Coppin State is a train wreck and a half. Jamarco had nineteen points, eighteen rebounds. Javon had twenty-two points. That's their final non-conference game of the year, I guess, before they play Syracuse. But look, heading into the under eight media break, Georgetown was behind eighteen to seventeen, and had already committed eleven turnovers. Jeez, oh flippity floops! But they turned it around. Coppin went on the streak where they had missed like thirteen or fourteen three-point shots. Georgetown got their game together a little bit, led thirty-eight twenty-three at halftime, and then in the second half continued to roll. Coppin is terrible. Coppin is horrible. At least in the game against Georgetown, they were awful. They couldn't hit shots. They couldn't hit free throws. That was a bad, bad HBCU school. Bad basketball uh, program. 
uh, uh, Juan Dixon. Jeez, <laughs> that is a bad, bad, bad basketball team. And they and those guys hung with Duke for a little bit. Whew, I don't know. I don't know, but it, it was good. It was good to see Chudier have a decent game. It was good to see Jabari Sibley get again with eight minutes to go. It was good to see Colin Holloway come in at the five minutes mark. It was good to see Dante Harris hit a couple of baskets and score for the first time this season. TJ Berger came in, as I mentioned before, after the uh, under four minute timeout, and he came in and knocked in a right side three and and uh, drove through the basket for a uh, layup with the shot clock running down. And look, beating the scrubs of Coppa State doesn't mean that those, that the TJ Berger should be playing like meaningful, meaningful minutes. But damn, I tell you one thing, his shot looked pretty good. The one time he shot the ball, it looked like he knew what he was doing. It looked like he had actually shot a three-pointer before. Again, outside of Jamarco and outside of Javon Blair, name me someone on that team that can do that. This team has no offensive talent. None. Nobody on that team can get to the hoop. I mean, nobody. We don't have any shot creators. Javon is a shot creator only with a step back three. He can't take anybody off the dribble. Jamarco can't take anybody off the dribble. Jalen Harris can't take anybody off the dribble. Dante Harris looked like he had the opportunity or he had the talent to possibly someday be able to do that. But right now, he doesn't have the skill set or the experience to do so. Don Carey doesn't have the athleticism to get to the hoop and finish. Cutis Wahab is still a work in progress. He's still more thinking than reactionary. He's still learning the game of basketball. Timothy Ego Hefe is nothing more than a rebounder, shot blocker, and a guy who's going to commit a lot of fouls in about 12 to 15 minutes of action. There's nobody on this team that can score the ball on their own. There's nobody. Nobody can break down the defense on this team. Nobody can score around the basket. Nobody can finish around the basket with any type of uh, consistency. It's going to be a long year. And when you have a team like Villanova who knows our sets, who knows the horn action and knows everything that Patrick Ewing runs, and I'm quite sure we're going to get bounced pretty well on Sunday unless, you know, Villanova sleepwalks throughout the game and only beats us by 18 but, uh, you know, if, if Villanova comes in and does what they need to do, they're going to destroy us. So are we going to play T.J. Berger? Are we going to sit T.J. Berger and all those guys with nine minutes to go in the game when we're losing by 36? Or are we just going to say, fuck it, man, go out there and let's just have those guys, Jabari and Colin Holloway and those guys who are supposed to be the players who are going to help revive the program eventually in a couple of seasons let's go out there and get that started already let's start building that foundation or are we going to continue to play Chudier Bile and Timothy Ego FA and while you know Jeremiah Robinson Earl and Colin Gillespie of Villanova you know make fools of us which they're going to be doing anyway but and you know are they going to be doing that while we're going to be down by 27 so let's just I don't know man let's, I'm 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 I I want to see Georgetown do well, but goodness gracious, against Coppa State, we had 26 turnovers. 26, 26, 26 turnovers against a really bad MEAC school. 26 turnovers. And those turnovers were the one where you just kind of like yelled at the TV like, what the fuck are you doing? You know, when I do, when my voice goes up like this. I mean, not what the fuck are you doing? You see how even kill that was? What the fuck were you doing? But when I, when my voice goes up an octave, what the fuck are you doing? 
That's when I'm really upset. If I had a kid, Marcus, what the fuck are you doing? That would be my deal, but it's just baffling, head-scratching, these guys can't play high-level basketball type of turnovers. That's what those guys were doing. Harris was way out of control, forcing the action, tight passes, tight coverages, right next to each other. They're throwing, he's throwing passes John Elway would be envious of in terms of his velocity. He had six turnovers. Javon Blair had six turnovers. You know, Chudas Wahab had four turnovers because he doesn't. He still yet doesn't know what to do with a double team. Jamarco Pickett had three turnovers because he still wants to try to get to the basket, which he can't. <sighs> Don Carey played 28 minutes. He was only two for eight from the field, 0 for four from the three-point line. And by the, and by the way, we, we beat Coppin State by 32. So again, Villanova's ranked number nine in the country. They're four and one. Justin Moore is a sophomore from Jamatha High School. He's going to come back home and put a whooping on us. Jeremiah Robinson Earl is a guy who's probably he's probably going to be drafted. If not this season, the next season, he's going to be a first-round draft pick. I don't know if Wahab or Pickett is going to guard him. Either way, he's going to have them for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and in-between meals. The team doesn't have a center on the, on the, on the roster if you're speaking about Villanova. Their tallest player is Robinson Earl and Cole Swindler, Swider. Swider? I don't know. The guy who's 6'9", comes off the bench. They're both 6'9", so I'm quite sure Ewing is going to try to force feed Cutis Wahab, which is going to lead to bad shots, which is going to lead to foul trouble, and it's going to lead to foul... Uh, it's going to lead to turnovers, foul troubles, and bad shots from Wahab, so Timothy Eagle Hefe is going to have to come in. I don't... He, I don't know. He's going to be picking up a lot of... Ewing might play small. I mean, he might go with Chudier, Jamarco, Don... Javon and Jalen, but I don't think that um, if, 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 Jamar- if Jamarco is going to have to be the guy that's going to be guarding Robinson Earl for the majority of the of the uh, game, and, and and whatever other guy that they come off the bench at the power forward center position, I don't I don't think that uh, Jamarco is going to be able to stay out of foul trouble. So this is going to be a beatdown of uh, pretty good proportions. Their top three scores are all guards, or three of their top four scores are all guards. Colin Gillespie, Moore, Caleb Daniels. So, I love my Hoyas, but it's like, I, I can accept an ass whooping. I don't mind an ass whooping. Especially this year. We're not playing in front of crowds. We don't know what the season's going to look like. The future remains positive with the players that we have coming in. But, man, if we want to start going ahead and start this machine rolling forward in terms of what we can be, Come on, coach. Again, we have to start playing our young players a little bit more. I'm not in practice. I don't know nearly, I don't know, I don't know anything as far as basketball is concerned compared to you. I admit it. I admit it. You know this program so much better than I do. You're in practices. I get all of those things. But I I just wish, I just wish, even if it means getting our asses kicked, I just wish that we could get some, some true reps for the guys, our freshmen, who are going to be the foundation for the turnaround when it comes. This is another one of mine. Something we like to do for everybody. Love crowd. This is song is a song that a girl took away from me. Good friend of mine. <laughs> this girl, she just took this song, but I'm still going to do it anyway.
Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Let me very quickly talk about my special dedication for December 10th, the 57th and 53rd anniversary of the deaths of Sam Cooke and Otis Redding. People talk about the day the music died when Richie Valens and the Big Bopper and um, Buddy Holly, when their plane crashed in Iowa. Well, let me tell you something, the day the music died could be plural in terms of the days the music died and progress for the black community and society was slowed halted, shattered, any way that you want to put when the deaths of Sam Cooke and Otis Redding happened. December 11th, 1964, Sam Cooke was murdered at the Hacienda Hotel, 9137 South Figueroa in Los Angeles. He was shot three times in the chest by the hotel's manager, Bertha Franklin. The authorities ruled Cooke's death a case of justifiable homicide based on the testimony of Miss Franklin, who claimed that that Cooke had threatened her Life after attempting to rape a young woman with whom he had earlier checked in. That is complete another bullshit. That is complete another nonsense. As far as Sam Cook trying to rape this woman, Elisa Boyer, who was a prostitute at the time. Sam Cook met her at a club. He got in his Ferrari. Instead of going home to his wife, he decided to go to a motel in South Figueroa, bad part of town. So he goes and checks in. They go to a room. Sam Cook then takes off his clothes, leaves his clothes in the in the bedroom or in the hotel room while he goes to the bathroom and closes the door. Now, if you're going to rape somebody, if you're holding someone against their will as Miss Boyer was talking about in, in, in court where she was saying, oh, she was saying, oh, please take me home. Please take me home. And he was saying, don't worry, baby. We're going to have some fun. We're going to do this. And I was just pleading, please take me home. I was just so scared and this, that, and the other. And he pinned me down and all this type of stuff. And he took off my dress and everything like that. So if Sam was going to do all that, then all of a sudden he was going to get up after he took off his clothes, then leave his clothes there with his wallet and the, his car keys, and then go into the bathroom, and then close the door, and then go into the bathroom? What? I've never heard anybody who was going to rape somebody go ahead and do that. So what really happened was, there was no like, oh my goodness, I was being held against my will. No, Elisa Boyer, and she had a history of doing this, when she would pick up a John, they would go to a place, they would take off, the guy would take off his clothes, she would rob him, take his wallet, take his money, and then leave, with his clothes so the guy couldn't pursue and that was her that was her deal that was her uh, that was her hustle so that's what she did with Sam oh yes yeah, Sam this that and the other cool great everything's fine they got in he went to the bathroom after he took off his clothes she took off with his money with his with his uh clothes and when Sam came out he was butt ball naked except for socks shoes and a and a trench coat or in a in a, in a suit jacket and everything else was gone so in a rage 
he went looking for this girl. He thought that the girl, Lisa Boyer, was in cahoots with the hotel manager, Bertha Franklin. He goes pounding on the door. He breaks the door down. He attacks uh, Bertha Franklin. Franklin, feared for her life, took out a gun and shot him three times. The last thing he said in his life was, lady, you shot me. He hit him, she hit him over the head with a broomstick, and that was the end of Sam Cooke. Fucked up way to die. Horrible way to die. He had a wife at home who he didn't like due to the fact that uh, he held her responsible for the drowning of their infant son, Vincent. I mean, and in, a, in a case, I kind of don't blame him due to the fact that, I mean, she didn't do it on purpose, but, you know, they lived in a place where they had a pool and she lost track of this infant who, who, you know, wandered out to the pool and fell in. I mean, how can you lose track of an infant or a baby for that amount of time? I, I just, uh, but December 11th, that would happen. Sam Cook life ended 9137 Figueroa Street in Los Angeles. Murdered at a $3 a, a night hotel by some fucking bitch named Bertha Franklin, who then had the nerve to try to sue the Cook family for, you know, pain and mental pain and anguish after everything that she went through. She moved back, she moved to uh, Michigan because she received so many death threats and everything. So she moved to Michigan where she uh, died in 1970. Hope that bitch is burning in hell. But uh, Lisa Boyer's still around as of 2019. She's still around. She's very old. A couple of years after. She, uh, after this incident, or I think in 1970 or 72, so we're speaking about six or eight years after this whole cook thing, she was sentenced to 15 years for manslaughter for killing her boyfriend. So this woman didn't stop, didn't stop her uh, hustle after she uh, caught the death, had a, had a part in the death of Sam Cook. But uh, as of 2019 or 2018, she's still around, but... You know, she claims she suffers from dementia. And it's like, I don't know anything. I'm sorry, couldn't tell you what I did five minutes ago, let alone five decades ago. So there you go. So may she also rot in hell whenever she uh, gets there. But uh, Sam Cooke was just awesome. Sam Cooke. And when I mentioned, when I say that in terms of uh, society changing, what he could do for the community in the positive way, Sam Cooke was more than just a singer. Sam Cooke was more than just along with Ray Charles and James Brown, one of the most influential musicians in terms of who they influenced in the later part of the 20 and 21st century. I mean, this was a man in Sam Cooke who was going to be Barry Gordy before Barry Gordy. Him and J.W. Alexander we're going to get along, we're going to go ahead, and they started their own record label. Because when they signed with Sony, you know, because of all of the hits that Sam had, You Send Me, uh, Chain Gang, all of those songs that I was playing, um, Sony gave him you know, carte blanche to do whatever he needed to do. And even though his manager, Alan Klein, was ripping him off blindly, Sam was still putting together a a label to where, you know, they were going to be able to do everything. And, you know, he brought in Bobby Womack and he brought in some of his, uh, uh, some of the folks that he would used to uh, uh, do concerts with in turn when he was on the gospel circuit. He was on the gospel circuit with the Solsters for about 10 years. And finally started when it started with them when he was 20, when he was 17. And then at 26, I mean, you know, you can only go so far back in the fifties when you're, you know, a gospel singer. I mean, you can only go to. You can only do that so many times before you 
hit a ceiling and Sam wanted to break through that ceiling. He wanted to be like Nat King Cole. He wanted to be like Harry Belafonte. He saw what was happening with Little Richard and he saw what was happening with Jackie Wilson. He saw what was happening with uh, those guys and he saw what, ha- what was happening with Ray Charles and that's what he wanted to do. And he knew we couldn't do that in the gospel genre, in the gospel field. So he went ahead and made a record called You Send Me which sold about a million plus albums and went high on the charts and for about seven years from 1957 till his death. I mean, it was nothing but, you know, top, it was nothing but hits after hits after hits after hits after hits. So this was a man who was in high demand. Right before his death, he went to the Copa, played at the Copa, rocked it, tore it up. And uh, things were just opening up for the man. Not only was he going to be a, producer only not only was he going to be a guy that was going to be an arranger a writer a record producer you know a businessman and all those type of things he was also starting to move into politics he was also starting to move into getting with the struggle in the civil rights movement he was interested in what Malcolm X was talking about he was you know connecting with then Cassius Clay he was actually had you know hey hey the gang's all here we're going to have some fun when Ali then Cassius Clay you know saying that that was Sam Cooke who produced and put all that together. So, I mean, this was a man where, you know, the white establishment was starting to take some notice of this guy because, you know, he was starting to really become that man of black power, of black power and black influence. And with that influence, he was going to help out the community. With that influence and with that empowerment, he was going to give those of the downtrodden. He was going to give those of the less fortunate. He was going to give those who at the time were legally oppressed the ability to do what he did and to bring those people out of poverty and to bring those people into some financial security and to bring those people into a betterment line of education to the, so they can improve themselves. So if you're doing that through your works with the black community, that can only help all of those communities because, of course, when the black community, I know white folks don't believe this, a lot of white folks don't believe this, but guess what? When the black community is striving and doing well, even if it wants to integrate with the white community, the white community is not going to suffer. Suffer. The white community is only going to grow. And best, especially back in the 60s at that time, the late 50s, early to mid-60s, what Sam Cooke was doing was revolutionary. Because most black artists got robbed in terms of what they did. Elvis was taking a lot of the black, black folk stuff. Him and that bastard uh, Tom, uh, uh, Colonel Parker would, you know, take songs written by black folks and steal it. And then Elvis would get all the credit. You know, You Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog was, was uh, sung by um, Big, uh, what's it? Uh, Big Mama Ray Thornton or something like that. But there's just a bunch of songs that were written by black folks, which Elvis stole and made him an international superstar and that bullshit about him being the king of rock and roll. Fuck you, you stupid-ass motherfuckers who are actually dumb enough to believe that bullshit. Rock and roll, soul music, that was created by black folks. Black folks. So that other bullshit about Elvis being the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley didn't write one motherfucking song. You're going to call that motherfucker the king of rock and roll. How stupid are you to believe some bullshit like that? Good singer, very talented, Got nothing against Elvis as a talent, but to elevate him to the king of rock and roll, which means he's going to be in a higher regard than such luminaries, such geniuses, such groundbreakers, such innovators as Ray Charles and Jackie Wilson and Little Richard and Otis Redding and Marvin Gaye and, and all those guys. Get the fuck out of here.
Get the fuck out of here. And Sam Cooke was one of those guys. Charter member of the of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when it was first introduced in 1987. He was also awarded uh, posthumously the Lifetime Achievement Granny Award. Uh, so he was a songwriter. He was a label owner. He was a performer. Guy was everything, man. And he was going to be doing some great things. And you talk about the artists that he influenced. You talk about Otis Redding, Marvin Gaye, Aretha Franklin, Al Green, Curtis Mayfield, The Beatles, Rod Stewart, Stevie Wonder. I mean, everybody who sung at Motown, Smokey Robinson, all of those guys are sitting there talking about, yeah, you know, for us, um, Sam Cooke was the man. I mean, you could hear it, especially with someone like Smokey Robinson. In terms of, you could hear it, especially with someone like Marvin Gaye, the Mar, the um, Sam Cooke influence. So there was nobody, I think, in secular music, with the exception of maybe Ray Charles, in terms of who was a bigger influence for the music going forward and the artists moving forward than Sam Cooke. They were the foundation and the major influencers of today's modern music. So it was just a damn shame. So when we're speaking about, when I'm speaking about why every December 10th, 11th or whatever, we need to recognize Sam Cooke because that's how important Sam Cooke is. That's how important Sam Cooke was. And that's how important Sam Cooke still remains today. Wendell's World of Sports. Yes, sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So so, uh, great for you to be with us. Let me end with my hero. Let me end with my man. Let me end with the guy named Otis Redding. Ah. Love myself and Moses Redding. I've told a relationship about himself and the folks at Stack Studios. I think it's extremely inspiring. I think for me, the way I live my life in terms of the relationships I build, um, you could just take a look and see the, the correlation between the relationship that Otis Redding had with such guys on um, Booker T and the MG, the greatest house band that's ever lived. When we're speaking about Booker T. Jones and Steve Colonel Cropper and Donald Duck Dunn and Al Jackson Jr., the relationship that those guys had with those, with him and Otis Redding, and the relationship that those guys Booker T. Booker T. Um, Al Jackson, Duck Dunn, Steve Cropper, what those guys had in terms of a friendship, in terms of unity, in terms of togetherness. When we're speaking about a time in Memphis, Tennessee, where nothing was integrated. Everything was segregated. And yet we have two white guys, you had two black guys coming together and just jamming and just playing great music and becoming a family and becoming, you know, those, they, 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 they became the great friends, family, just because of the type of people that they were and the music that they played, that they played and the connection that they had. Again, at a time where, you know, what white stayed over here, blacks were down there, those guys in a black ghetto where Stack Studio was came in there and they created great music. And Otis came in there and was part of that family. And uh, those, those guys were brothers. So for me, when I like to live my life in terms of the way I live my life, in terms of my friendships, in terms of the relationships I cultivate and everything like that, is based on the Otis Redding, Booker T. Jones, Al Jackson Jr., Donald Duck Dunn, David Porter, Isaac Hayes, that family that was Stack Studios. I don't know why. No one hasn't made a movie about that yet. But uh, even if it's something like The Five Heartbeats with Robert Townsend, where it was loosely based on The Temptations, or something like Dreamgirls, which was loosely based on Motown, I don't know why someone hasn't come up with a loosely based deal concerning um, Otis Redding and um, the folks that he recorded 
Booker T and EMGs and those guys, those are the ones that gave him the opportunity. It wouldn't be a notice Reading without those guys, without Stack Studios, and as much of a bad year of talent that Jim Stewart had, who was the owner of Stacks, he gave them the opportunity. He Otis came up there one afternoon, one evening to go ahead and record. He was a roadie for Johnny Jenkins. And those guys went from Macon, Georgia. Otis Redding was part of the Johnny Jenkins band. Johnny Jenkins was a Chuck Berry wannabe. Those guys went from Macon, Georgia, drove from Macon, Georgia, all the way up to Memphis, Tennessee. And Otis got out, and he was unloading the equipment and everything. And those guys look was you know <laughs> those musicians and everything were looking at him like, who the fuck is this guy? I guess he's nothing but a roadie. I've never heard of him. This, that, and the other. So Johnny Jenkins started the recording session. Nothing really came out of it. And all throughout the all throughout the session, Otis was up there talking about, I can sing, I can sing. Hey, Al, I can sing, I can sing, I can sing. So finally, Al Jackson just went to Steve Cropper, who was you know, kind of leading the session. And he was like, hey, man, could you do me a favor? This motherfucker over here is just talking about I can sing, I can sing. And this guy's getting on my last nerves. Could you just, we got a little time left. Can you just humor this guy, get him on the microphone, let him sing so we can get the hell out of here? I got a gig tonight over at the plantation and, you know, my other job. So I just don't have time to be listening to this guy talking about I can sing, I can sing, I can sing. Just go ahead and do that for me. So they set it up for Otis. Otis sang these arms of mine, and it was kind of like, whoa! <laughs> Hello! <laughs> we got something here. Offered him a contract, and away he went in terms of his uh, career for Otis. And uh, it was something where it was just built brick by brick. He had two white managers, Phil and Alan Walden, who helped him immensely in terms of off of the... Uh, when not making music, I mean, here was a guy who dabbled in real estate. Here was a guy who brought, who bought himself a big old estate over in Round Oak. Um, you know, so Otis Redding had influences in Macon, Georgia, in Nashville, Tennessee, two very segregated areas where his friendship, where his love for each other, they were both black and white. So there was no segregation anywhere in Otis Redding's life. Now, we had Speedo Sims and he had other guys with him who were from the neighborhood, who were from Dawson, Georgia, who were from the projects where Otis Redding grew up. And those were his boys and everything like that. But Otis wasn't inclusive in terms of, you know, who he was respectful to, who he, you know, cared for and treasured his friends and everything. They came from all races, faces, shapes, and places. So, again... Want to know why I treasure Otis Redding so much? You know, want to know the reason why I love Otis Redding so much? You want to know why I revere Otis Redding so much? It's because of that. Hard work, dedication, just a commitment to his craft, always working, always improving, working hard. You know, he got rich basically by just building, building. He didn't have, you know, a, a hit record right off the bat. You know, he kept building and building. He went from... Pain of my heart to I can't turn you to lose to respect to try a little tenderness to security to I mean he just kept building and building and none of these songs were you know pop top ten hits or something like that he didn't have that but what he did was he just kept building and he just kept grinding and he just kept being on the road and he just kept getting better and this longer he the more he grind the more popularity he got to where. He got to the point where now all of a sudden, you know, he was making top dollar from appearing and performing. And so he did that. And he went overseas and he was a huge hit in London, in England, and over in Europe. 
to where the Stax Volt tour went in 1967, where, you know, they just tore up the place. I mean, it was unbelievable. Him, Sam and Dave, Carla Thomas, Eddie Floyd, uh, Isaac Hayes, the Barkeys, the Marquis. I mean, it was just amazing what those guys did. They weren't playing in front of stadiums or anything like that, but everywhere they went, these white kids in England, these white kids in Sweden, these white kids in Norway, these white kids in Paris, France, they loved the guy. They were incredible. They go off the plane in England. The Beatles had limos for those guys. These guys blown away. These guys couldn't believe it. Like, these guys actually heard of us? These, actually, these guys actually know that we're, we're this big of a deal? They couldn't believe it. Through hard work, through determination, through dedication, through just fighting. That's what Otis Redding was all about. The last six months of his life, he was right fucking there, man. He was right there. He was... He was one of the breakout stars at the Monterey Pop Festival in front of 50,000 people where his, his career was going to take another step forward, a couple of step forwards, 50,000 hippies. Both of them didn't even hear him. They've never even heard of the guy when he went to Monterey in the summer of 1967. Near midnight, came on and blasted out, shout, try a little tenderness, respect. Although I've been, I've been loving you too long. I've been loving you too long to stop now. It blew him away. And he had to hurry up. It was like, hey, look, we're gonna have to end the uh, we're gonna have to end the first day by midnight. We're gonna give you about six or seven minutes. Go. And he cranked that thing up. He had the mark, he had the uh, barcade, not barcade, he had a booker T um on the stage with him. And I mean he was just jamming, 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 jamming. And that crowd was just mesmerized. As Wayne Jackson said, good Lord, we, it felt like we ran over them with a Mack truck. The way we came out and the way we just hit them with our music and the way we just hit them with our sound, the way Hodas just hit them with their soul. Just uplifted them. They just couldn't believe it. They'd never heard anything like that. They were going crazy. So after the Monterey Pop Festival, I took his career off and opened up a whole new bunch of doors and all new avenues. So then that October, he was... He had thrown Elvis Presley at the year's top male vocalist in a poll by the British music magazine Melody Maker, which at the time was a huge deal. And then moving on, there was going to be things like he had appearances coming up on the Ed Sullivan and Johnny Carson shows. He was going to do a duet with Aretha Franklin that those two were going to be doing a duet album. There was talk about him going on a Christmas trip to Vietnam to entertain the troops in 68. There was a discussion about Otis Redding and Marvin Gaye going on tour together. It was going to be like Southern Soul versus Northern Soul. All of those things. I mean, there were movie scripts that were coming for Otis and television roles that he had the opportunity to do. And he was also thinking about doing what Sam Cooke did, taking and taking the torch of the legacy of Sam Cooke. And he was going to be a guy that was going to be a record owner and a record producer. He was a guy that was going to uh, open up a Stax type studio in Macon, Georgia. And he was going to um, be that guy who was going to bring in local talent and make them superstars. Arthur Connolly, where he wrote um, uh, Do You Like Good Music, which was a version of Yeah Man by Sam Cooke. He had Arthur Connolly. He recorded that, wrote that with Arthur Connolly. And that went as a big hit in the, on, a, on the uh, pop uh, charts. So Otis had all of this stuff going for him. And then in 1967, God damn it, God damn it, God damn it, December 10th, 328 Beechcraft, which he bought for 78,000. He had played, he had played at a place in Cleveland, uh, and then was on a show Upbeat. 
which was like another deal from American Bandstand. If you don't know what American Bandstand is, kids, Wikipedia is pretty good. But he was on the Upbeat show, and he did a couple of songs, try a little tenderness, respect and such. And then the next day, he was going to fly out to Madison, Wisconsin, to do a couple of uh, gigs. And then he was going to come back that that next week to Stax and finish up a song that he had written called, I don't know if you heard it, it's called Dock of the Bay. Fuck yeah! Which is not one of my favorites, by the way. I love the old Otis Redding stuff where he was soulful, like Dock of the Bay. But um, if you're talking about these arms of mine and try a little tenderness and his version of Cupid and his alternative version of Day Tripper and um, Don't Mess With Cupid and Old Man Trouble, all of those songs I like, I like a little bit more than Sitting on the Dog of the Bay, which I enjoy very much, don't get me wrong. But, you know, the soulful Otis Redding, I'm down with that. But he was going to come back and he was going to record that song. But, you know, him and the Barcase went down, plane went down on Lake Monoma, 328 on a Sunday afternoon, and uh, that was it, they found his body at the uh, at the bottom of the uh, lake the next day, December 10th, Madison, Wisconsin, and uh, everybody on that, everybody that was in that plane perished except for one member of the uh, Barcase, Ben Cawley, James Alexander, the bassist, they didn't have enough room for him on that plane, so he flew commercial. So those are the two survivors of the Barcades, but everybody else, Carl Cunningham and the rest of those guys, perished in that plane crash. What could have been? What could have been? Mm, 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 mm. So much respect. Much respect for Otis Redding. He was going to be the next Ray Charles. Atlantic had him set up to be the next Ray Charles in terms of what he was going to what he was going to do. He was really seriously thinking about leaving Stack Studios, and uh, because he had just outgrown those guys, I don't know how much his loyalty would have meant, and I don't know you know what would have happened. I wasn't around. I wasn't even born in sixty eight, sixty seven. But uh, hmm. something else, man. Something else. So, as I mentioned before, it'll be interesting. I hope when I get to heaven, whenever that be, whenever that is, I hope if I meet the Lord, I could be like, Lord, can I just have five minutes with Otis Redding? Because, man, I want to ask him some questions. Can I have, like, you know, once again, once I reunite with my mom and dad, family members, my uncles, my aunts, my grandparents who I never met, especially want to spend a lot of time with them once I get up to heaven, but... Could you, Lord, could you carve me out some time after all of that is done? I mean, I got I got the eternity to do it, so I'm in no rush. But can I just have 10 minutes with Malcolm, 8 minutes with Otis, 5 minutes with Ali, and 6 minutes with Sam, 3 minutes with uh, Donnie Hathaway? Could you, could you just give me a little bit of time because there's just some things that I'm dying to know. First thing I want to do when I get up to heaven is say, Lord, all right. Who really killed JFK? Is that shit for real or what? Lord, let me ask you a question. Who really killed Martin Luther King Jr.? Who was it? Come on. It wasn't James Earl Ray, right? It couldn't have been. Couldn't have been. And what was J. Edgar Hoover's responsibility in this? Those are the things I'm inquisitive to ask about when I finally get to the pearly gates if I'm going to be lucky enough to uh, be let in. Working on it, building my resume. But uh, yeah, God bless you. Rest in peace. Two fabulous, fabulous, fabulous historical figures, Otis Redding and 
um, Sam Cooke. So that's about it, man. This was a long one, but it was worth it. It was worth it. Really enjoyed doing this one. Talked about the NBA. Talked about uh, Georgetown. Talked about uh, college football. Talked about black coaches not getting the chance at college football. Got a lot of stuff out of me in terms that I wanted to say. That I wanted you to hear me say. Your thoughts and feelings and your opinions, man. Take it to each other. Take it to, you know, hey. just Take a little bit of what I gave you. And uh, take it and see what you can do with it, man. Moving it forward. But most definitely, try to see what you can do about learning a little bit more about Otis Redding and Sam Cook, my heroes. So I'm ending the program with the last, uh, this was uh, Otis Redding, Try a Little Tenderness. Um, this was recorded, or he did this December 9th, 1967, like I said, in the Upbeat Show in Cleveland. And the next day... I guess he had, what, less than 24 hours to live when he did this. And those wonderful musicians that were behind him with the exclusion of two. So, try a little tenderness by the great, the wonderful, the powerful, the marvelous, the unbelievable, the brilliant Otis Redding. Peace. Them young girls, they do get wearied Wearing that same old miniskirt dress Yeah, 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 yeah But when she gets weary You try your little tenderness Yeah, yeah, yeah Now I know she's waiting Just anticipating For things that she'll never, 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 never possess No, no But while she's there waiting Just a little bit of tenderness That's all you got to do Now it might be A little bit sentimental No, no, no But she has Her grief and care Yeah, yeah, yeah But the soft words, they are spoke so gentle, yeah, yeah, yeah.